When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. Lately, I have been able to be out among many of you. I just got back from a trip to Idaho and spent a wonderful Sunday evening with so many of you, and then got to spend two days with the incredible missionaries of the Idaho Pocatello Mission. Uh, if your sons or daughters or grandsons and granddaughters are serving there, they're absolutely amazing. So thank you for loaning them to the Lord. And believe me, you're getting your, your money's worth. <laughs> your, the return on your investment is incredible. It really was amazing to just spend two days with them at their zone conferences and, and feel their spirit and their desire and their goodness. Uh, amazing things are happening out in the mission field, and it's, it's beautiful to see. Now, today we are going to have a shorter lesson, I hope. Keep your fingers crossed. Uh, after last week, it's got to be shorter, right? We had so many chapters to cover last week, uh, some amazing material. If you didn't get through it all, I can't blame you, but I do hope you'll go back to the, uh, the end of the first half where we talk about the parables of the lost, particularly the parable of the prodigal son. I think we spent an hour on it, just unpacking uh, phrase by phrase and word by word and layer after layer of meaning. There's so much to that parable. And then where we ended with the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead to see the differences in, in mourning between Martha and Mary. Uh, some powerful, powerful things. And then so many parables from those, <laughs> those wonderful villains that we love to hate uh, throughout the book of Luke. I really loved our time spent last week and look forward just as much to this week. It'll be shorter. Today we're covering Matthew 19 and 20 uh, with a quick field trip to Luke chapter 18 and a little bit of Mark sprinkled in between uh, to help round out the storylines. But there's some powerful things here too. We have some more parables that are going to be incredibly important uh, and some straight out teachings where the Lord isn't, isn't making a parable, isn't trying to sneak things in under the under the the guise of a story, but rather this is straight up doctrine that we need to wrap our heads and hearts around, even if it's a hard saying. And there will be some of those today too. But I also want us to understand how close we are to the end. As of next week, we will be celebrating Palm Sunday in our Come Follow Me study. We will be at the triumphal entry. It's amazing that we're, all, we're fast approaching the Savior's final week. And so pay close attention to what he's going to say because as of today, because of as of next week, he's in Jerusalem and the final week of the Savior's life is upon us. So we're going to start Matthew 19. Uh, Matthew will be the one that kind of carries the, the baton for today uh, for the most part and we'll bring in the other synoptics. No John today at all. We'll bring in the other synoptics to help us understand a little bit more of what, uh, what we're seeing here. But in Matthew 19, starting in verse 1, it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, and what were these sayings? Well, go back a page and at the end of Matthew 18, we saw the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, if you remember our discussion about that one, how, how merciful will we be toward others considering how merciful the Lord has been to us? How do we view ourselves and how do we view others? Those are principles that we're going to see a lot of today uh, in this week's material. But as, he, as Jesus has finished those sayings, he then departed from Galilee 
and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. So this is his last journey to Jerusalem. There's no going back to Galilee after, after today. Well, great multitudes followed him, as usual, and he healed them there. The Mark version says, as he was wont, he taught them again. So healing in Matthew, teaching in Mark, either way, it's teaching, preaching, healing, as usual. But not everyone was coming to be healed or taught. The story picks up, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, as usual, the Pharisees are trying to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. If you remember what we talked about a few weeks ago about the woman taken in adultery, Moses says this, oh, but what do you say? And we're going to try to pit you against a, a, a previous prophet that everyone knows must be followed. We're going to try to pit justice and mercy against each other and then see how you deal with it so that no matter which one you pick, you're in the wrong. Remember that discussion? And Jesus said, well, let's pick both then, shall we? Let's, let's have both justice and mercy. Let's neither condemn nor condone. The challenge that the Pharisees, or that he was seeing among the Pharisees, was this all or nothing kind of mentality. Things are mutually exclusive, and if you have one, then you cannot possibly have the other. And in a similar situation, they are trying to pit Jesus against the possibilities of divorce. Are you for it or are you against it? You see, there were two major schools of thought within Pharisaism at the time. They each kind of had their, their chief rabbi that they looked to. But, within, but between those two, there were differing views on divorce. They both allowed for it, but under different circumstances. And here, they're trying to bring Jesus into the conversation and ask the question, is it lawful to divorce at all? Now, again, the challenge here is they're trying to make everything black and white. It, you, is, are you for divorce or against divorce? And you see the problem with making it all or nothing, with no nuance in the middle? We live in a day that, sadly, tries to push oh, possibilities in our face and say, pick one or the other, and there's nothing in the middle. Have you ever taken a survey, for example, that asks for your opinion about something, and it's either a yes or a no, or a, a pro or con? Are you for this or are you against this? And then there's no space for you to explain your answer. That's the part that kills me. Because for the most part, I could probably lean toward one option more than the other, but I have to be able to explain. I have to be able to say, this is how I'm proving contraries here. Here's the, the, what's correct on the other side that I need to hold on to. Here are the exceptions to that general rule, even though I support the general rule. I, I, just, I don't support it uh, without exception. I don't, I don't stand for it 100%. And again, when a survey comes out with only the two options and no chance to explain yourself, I get so frustrated because I know they're going to misinterpret my answer, no matter what it is. If, for example, the world were to say, Are the, is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for or against divorce? Which is exactly what they're saying to Jesus here. Is it lawful for a man to be divorced, to put away his wife, for every cause? Are we against divorce? Yes. But are we so against divorce that we consider it unlawful in every circumstance? No. If you remember several years ago, Elder Dallin H. Oaks gave a talk in General Conference about divorce. And having just come home from a year in a predominantly Catholic country where divorce is almost impossible to come by, he explained that 
the divorce has to be an option. It should be a rare one, but it has to be an option for those in such a circumstance that that staying in an incredibly harmful or abusive marriage would be self-destructive. So are we for or against divorce? Well, if we just say against, then there's no exceptions to that rule. If we just say for, then there's no rule. It's all the exceptions. That is the new rule. Yeah, go ahead and get divorced for whatever reason you want. Same with abortion. Are we, I never made, never made sense to me when I was young and I would go to general conference sometimes and see these picketers outside Temple Square with their big signs against abortion. They were all pro-life picketers. And I remember thinking, we're pro-life too. What, we agree with you. What are you talking about? Until I realized that they, are, they, they were against abortion in every circumstance. Whereas the position of the church is there are a few rare exceptions to that rule. And they need to be, so, and so the exceptions need to be allowed. Uh, you could say the same thing about, is the church for or against LGBT issues? The, the LGBTQ community. Are we, are we allies or enemies? And it is so unfair when people pit those two possibilities against each other without any middle ground, without any proving of contraries between law and love or truth and tolerance, chastity and charity, and without any chance to explain yourself. That's why it's a struggle, even when it comes to symbols. Uh, because symbols are, have so many layers of meaning, but they don't, they don't speak for themselves. You have to be able to explain yourself. So if a, a certain symbol that you're, I mean, whether it's a, a rainbow flag, whether it's an American flag, it's so interesting to see those flags have now become pitted against each other. And what, do you have to pick one or the other? Uh, is this, again, Democrat versus Republican and right versus left? And, and it's, it's a scary world that we live in that doesn't allow you to explain where you're coming from. That's what they're trying to do with Jesus here. But Jesus does do some explaining. And it's important that we understand what he says. In verse 4 through 6, he answered and said unto them, Have you not read... Which is an interesting way of saying, come on, guys, you're supposed to know the scriptures, okay? You're the scribes, you're the Pharisees, you're supposed to know chapter and verse. And so how well do you know what Moses was getting at when he allowed for divorce, but was also careful in terms of how he allowed for it? In the Mark account, by the way, he asks even more pointedly, what did Moses command you? So not just, hey, haven't you read? It's like, no, 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 you tell me. What did Moses say? And then Jesus starts to answer that question that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Now, what Jesus has just done is given them a quick review of the book of Genesis, at least the creation story. The creating male and female, having them leave father and mother, which is interesting in Adam and Eve's case, but to cleave to one another, to become one. And then Jesus gives his explanation of this, or his conclusion. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. That's how it's supposed to be. It's not two anymore. It is one. In a good marriage, you look at your parents and you say, oh, that's mom and dad. And it becomes almost this, this one-syllable term for, for a two-headed creature. <laughs> that, that, oh yes, there are two bodies and two, two heads, but only one soul and only one will. I will not pull them apart or pit them against one another. No more twain, one flesh. 
And then Jesus concludes, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. I love that Jesus puts their question into a much larger context. And instead of just answering the question they asked, let's step back a little bit and do some explaining. Let's see how this fits into the big picture, the big picture of marriage and the big picture of our purpose on earth. Because from the very beginning, God sent Adam and Eve, created them in the garden and created them in order to be one. It's actually interesting the way he puts it. In the beginning, he made them male and female. Because in the creation account, so many of those days were days of division. Let's divide light from darkness. Because each has its own place, uh, its own purpose. Let's divide sea from land. Because we need both of those realities. Uh, in this case, let's, oh, let's divide firmament from ab you know, above from below. There needs to be that upper-lower division. But in his final day of creation, day six, he created male and female. And again, do you see that as a day of division? Let's separate the genders and make sure that they understand that they are equal, but not equivalent, that each gender will be a, and help meet for its opposite. It's one of the ultimate provings of contraries, by the way. <laughs> male, female, it's, both are incredibly essential, uh, but they are different and need to be. And, and the male keeps the female from becoming too female, and the female keeps the male from becoming too male, just like contraries always do. Justice keeps mercy from becoming, oh, uh, overly permissive, and mercy be keeps justice from becoming, becoming overly tyrannical, right? This is the whole, that's the whole yin-yang, proving contraries concept. But for us to understand that from the very start, God placed difference together. He divided in hopes of them reconciling. He gave two with the purpose of them becoming one. They weren't homogenous from the start. They were not the same person. They were going to be inherently different. But with those inherent differences, it forces us to become better, on our, better ourselves. It forces us to compromise and work things out and come to a unanimity in decision-making so that both sides are being heard and being honored. That's a good marriage, okay? Now you think about divorce, since that's the context of this whole conversation. Divorce is the difficulty. It's dividing and remaining divided. It's, it's seeing, oh, male and female were too different, and, the, and never the twain shall meet. Whatever, never the twain shall meet. The twain shall become one flesh, not just meet, but completely merge. That's incredible what the Lord is asking. He meant it to be eternal. You remember that when that first marriage in Eden was performed, it was prior to the fall, which means death was not a possibility yet. In that original marriage, the Lord could not have said, till death do you part, because that was an unknown vocabulary word as far as Adam and Eve were concerned. Till what do we, what is he talking about? No, this is meant to be eternal. In other, in other words, Oh, and I'll say this too. The fact that they were meant to stay together, it was the second commandment, don't partake of the fruit if you plan on staying here. It was the first commandment, multiply and replenish. And that does require the divided male-female to truly become of one flesh, a true merging of soul and spirit and body in order to create. It's amazing that creation itself depends on 
difference and unity. Talk about contraries there that need to be proven. But for Adam then to follow Eve's courageous example, partake of the fruit so that they would not be permanently divided, but that the, even the fall itself could not break up this relationship, this companionship. Think about how God intended marriage from the start. A fusing of opposites. Opposites attracting in the best possible way. Something meant to last eternally. And something meant to overcome the fall. We've talked about that often here, about the stages of faith and of life being creation, fall, atonement. And marriage is one of the ultimate ones. Adam and Eve are the poster children of creation, fall, atonement, writ large, as far as the pillars of eternity are concerned. They were, were pole position in creation. They initiated the fall. They learned above the, about the atonement from the angel that came to explain the law of sacrifice. They are creation, fall, atonement. But in their marriage, same thing. Their marriage in Eden was creation. Partaking of the fruit, a decision, by the way, Eve made when she was not with her husband. There was not oneness in making that choice. Adam then decided, yes, the oneness needs to be there. But there was that fall. But a decision to stick it out and stay together and to leave the safety and security of the garden in order to navigate a lone and dreary world, but at least not to be lonely in the process. That's real marriage. That's the way it's designed to be. And if we can look back to our first parents as the first couple and think, how do I make my marriage more like that one? How do I allow for self-sacrifice to, to draw me to my spouse, come what may? A willingness to leave a, a, an Eden of ease if it means that we're going to go through life, even a fallen one, together. The, what the Lord is explaining here is so beautiful about what marriage can and should be. It's about at-one-ment. It's about reconciliation. It's about two becoming one permanently, no matter what comes between you. That's how it's supposed to be from the beginning. No wonder what C.S. Lewis said is so appropriate. He described divorce, it's less of a dissolving of some kind of business partnership, and it's more like the amputation of a limb. If two have truly become one, then you can't tease out the differences anymore. You've fully merged. And so from the start, from the beginning, as the Lord says, haven't you read it? Divorce shouldn't be an option. Oh, so does that mean he's just clicking on the no button without any explaining? Is divorce lawful? No, it is not. Well, it's, Jesus seems to be leaning in that direction. But then notice verse 7 through 9. They say unto him, okay, fine, then, then why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? I mean, obviously, Moses allowed for it. So pitting prophets against each other, let's stick with Moses instead of with you. Now you're being too just in terms of there's a law and you got to stick to it. Or maybe, and that's an interesting irony, maybe you're being too merciful that no matter what the other person has done, there is no just cause for divorce. Now, Jesus never errs on the side of justice or on the side of mercy because he never errs. 
He explains himself, and that's what he's going to do next. So why then would Moses allow for divorcement as long as you give a writing of it? The Lord's answer, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And it's that, that Eden model, that from the beginning that I'm trying to bring us all back to. I'm trying to reverse the fall. I'm trying to help us get us get through it so we can get on to atonement. But then he says this, as far as this writing of divorcement is concerned, and the allowance that Moses made for divorces. I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now we saw something similar hinted at last week in Luke, and we needed a little JST to help clarify things. Uh, but here in Matthew, it's, you better have a good reason. We'll allow for a reason. We'll allow for divorce. Moses did. But it was because of human frailty and human fallenness. To put it starkly, it was because of the hardness of the human heart. Uh, that exceptions to the general rule of absolute oneness and reconciliation, there have to be exceptions made. But notice the kind of ex exception he's giving here. Fornication, adultery, something on that level where it has truly broken hearts, lost confidence, deep wounds, uh, broke. Those are the kinds of things, that's the language that Jacob uses uh, in Jacob chapter 2, to these wicked Nephite husbands that have been immoral against their wives. This is major stuff here. Now, that's Matthew's version. Mark's is even more stark and thus even more confusing. In Mark chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And then the account ends and it moves on to the next story. I mean, really abruptly, there's no caveats, there's no qualifications. And thus there's no divorce, period. That's it. I mean, you read the Mark version, and no wonder Catholicism has a leg to stand on of saying, no, we just don't allow for it. Wow. Now, a couple of things to say as we, I'm not trying to pit Matthew against Mark. I'm actually grateful we have multiple accounts of this to be able to see things from different perspectives and help, hopefully help us avoid extremes. Now, one thing that Mark added that I thought was interesting, uh, the, the, Mark, the Matthew version, it's all, it's all male-centered. If the man uh, divorces his wife, puts away his wife, then he better have a good reason. And fornication was the reason that, that Matthew mentions. Now, in the Mark version, he, also, he doesn't just say if a man puts away his wife. He also says if a woman puts away her husband. And that's interesting. In that time period, that would have been incredibly rare, if, if even possible at all. But for Matthew to have Jesus bring in, excuse me, for Mark to mention that Jesus brought that up, that is a radical equality between male and female, but also a radical responsibility that divorce could be initiated by either partner in this version. And in our day, that's definitely the case, that it could be either party's fault. And yes, it probably takes the fault of both to lead to these things. But, but to see that that one side is not absolved of responsibility. And so male, female, husband, wife, we both have some things to think about and some reason to look inward. 
But the other issue there is, wow, Mark doesn't leave any room. Mark's really is a, are you for or against divorce? And it's an against and there's no space to explain. Wow. Which one do we stick with? I would say both. And thank you for both. Because here's the thing. I think that we need to be looking at marriage and its significance, its sacredness, through the lens of the creation story and the fall. From the beginning, what did God intend? But also seeing it, yes, through the fall and realizing that because of fallenness, because of the hardness of the human heart, there are times where a marriage needs to be dissolved and that it is justifiable. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But what I think here is that Mark needs to be read in light of Matthew. In other words, whoa, 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 Mark, Mark account. There, there may be some exceptions to this rule. And I think Mark would sit there and go, okay, you're probably right. But also reverse it. If Mark needs to be read through the light of Matthew, Matthew needs to be read through the light of Mark. And Matthew needs to be told, okay, yeah, 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 there's exceptions, but barely. And it better be an incredibly justifiable reason that you're doing this. There's, again, here we have these two sides, these two contraries. And to have Matthew and Mark trying to help us avoid either extreme. It's like their version of things stands almost as a sentinel to keep you from going too far in one direction or another and either not allowing for any exceptions or making everything a justifiable reason. Okay? If, if we were too far on one extreme for far too long, as I've said so many times, history does not correct itself. It overcorrects itself. And if getting a divorce was too hard through most of human history, we've now overcorrected and made it far too easy. Elder Brucey Hafen of the Quorum of the 70s, an emeritus member now, uh, was a family lawyer and talked about the damage that was done when no-fault divorce came onto the books. And it's been downhill since there, uh, since then, as far as people having less and less of a justifiable reason for ending something that was supposed to be eternal. We've got to do better than that. We've got to give it our very best for our spouse's sake, for our, our own sake, especially for the children's sake, for the sake of the world that was meant to be a forest of family trees, not a logging camp. I would say this too before we look at the next verse, because you can picture the apostles really wrestling with this, eyes wide open, whether it's Mark's account or Matthew's, and sure enough, it'll be that way. But what, what about Moses? What about Moses' allowance that he said, as long as you give a writing of divorcement? And that was the thing. Now, pretty much, I mean, if you don't like the way things are going, then just write something down and then you're justified. What Moses was trying to avoid was just, I mean, picture being condemned and not even knowing why. Picture being, being put away and you're wondering, what, what did I do wrong? No, there needs to be something that you can put down in writing. But here's the irony. Moses wasn't trying to make that... He wasn't trying to encourage divorce. He wasn't saying, oh yeah, well, this is what you ought to do. You ought to just write bills of divorcement. No, left and right, willy-nilly. No. What Moses is getting at is, you better have good reason. Reason worth recording. 
If you were to write down the reasons that you were contemplating divorce, and then after the heat of the emotional moment has passed, when you're, in, I mean, when you're in the middle, it's like, you know the old saying, you should never go shopping when you're hungry? Well, you should never decide to get divorced when you're mad. Uh, because it's now a completely emotional knee-jerk reaction instead of mind and heart working together. There's another contrary. Uh, trying to come up with a right decision that's both logical and spiritual and emotional. Imagine if you were to write things down and then when the fight ended and some time passed and your, your heart settled and you were able to think clearly, then to go back to that writing, does it still, do your arguments still seem as strong? Does it still seem so justifiable? If you were to present that paper in a court of law, and one that took marriage seriously, would it stand up as permissible evidence of the justifiable reasons you're about to end something God intended to be eternal? Could that piece of paper be presented in a celestial court, that bill of divorcement? This is why. This is why I was done with it, and I'd had it, and was ending things. What will the jury say? How will the judge feel? Remember what we started this chapter with? On the heels of what Jesus had just taught, which was what? The parable of the unmerciful servant. Do you have any idea how much the Lord has forgiven you? If there were anyone that could write a long list for their bill of divorcement. Remember, husband loves your wife, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. He's sealed to us. Remember Jeremiah and, and Hosea and Isaiah and so many Old Testament prophets that used adultery and marriage as their metaphor for apostate Israel? Cheating on the God that they were supposed to be sealed to? You remember Hosea's incredible mercy? his charity, his long-suffering, his compassion to an unfaithful wife. He had every reason to divorce her. But he kept giving her more chances, holding out hope that two really could become one someday, somehow. If this is the, the lesson he teaches on the heels of the unmerciful servant, do you see context? Don't let the chapter heading split things up. And picture Jesus saying, how much have I, as your husband, forgiven you? 10,000 talents worth? Can you not forgive and forget the hundred pence worth of debt that you think your spouse owes to you? Maybe they do, but compared to what you owe to me, that is negligible. No wonder in the Matthew version, he escalates things to the point of fornication, of adultery. And if it's, if it's not that, then maybe you're the adulterous one. Again, that's a tricky thing. We've talked about this back in the Sermon on the Mount, but this is, this is hard. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Who can understand it? Who can unpack it? We've we got we to gotta try. Because if I'm looking for easy justification to end something intended for eternity, and I'm already looking ahead, because if I can end this divorce, then I can legally marry someone else. And if I already have that someone in mind, or just any someone, any someone besides the someone I've got, 
Do you see how you're already beginning to commit adultery in your heart? That you're already starting to look away from your spouse to greener pastures somewhere else? No, that is adultery. Remember, Jesus raised the bar. The law said don't commit adultery. I say don't even look with lust. I say pluck out that eye, cut off that hand. I say change your heart and turn your heart to the person that once it was turned to wholeheartedly. You chose this person. Keep on choosing them day by day by day. Now, like I said, this is our hard saying for the apostles, for the disciples. In verse 10 of Matthew 19, his disciples say unto him, and in the Mark version, by the way, it's in the house that his disciples ask him again of the same matter. <laughs> I love it. Like, as usual, they don't want to be out in public when, as they're scratching their head and looking confused. So now they're behind closed doors. They're in the house. But either way, they say to Jesus, if the case of the man be so with his wife, ah, it is not good to marry. In other words, that bar is so high, it's not even worth trying to clear it. Nobody's going to be able to pull that off. No reason for divorce or no reason but adultery, fornication. Wow, let's just stay away from the whole institution of marriage from the beginning. And again, the Lord would say, no, go back to the beginning. Don't you think it crossed Adam's mind once Eve had partaken of the fruit? Well, I, I got a pretty good gig here in Eden. No, we, uh, no weeds to pull. No eating bread by the sweat of my brow. No, this is pretty good. I'll just take the easy way out. Whether it's an easy way out for and getting a divorce or the easy way out of not entering into a marriage to begin with. I do worry sometimes even among the, the, the rising generation as marriage age gets later and later. Do we kind of ease ourselves into the ease of Eden? Do we get used to it? And then we start thinking, ooh, going out to the lone and dreary world doesn't, doesn't sound so good. I've, I mean, yeah, it'd be nice to get married, but I got a pretty good life on my own with nobody to care about, nobody to worry about, nobody telling me what to do. I don't have to compromise at all. I can do my own thing. Either way, this is making things too easy. And marriage, marriage is supposed to require the very best of us. Why do you think the Lord wants us to step into it? It's one of the best ways he knows to perfect human nature. To, to throw us into an opposites attract kind of situation. Because sometimes opposites don't attract. <laughs> and to figure things out and to rub off rough edges and to, to turn two into one. Oh, it's amazing what the Lord is trying to get out of a good marriage. Maybe what the Lord is getting at is pushing back against the apostles when they realize, whoa, this is really hard. It's like, yeah, marriage is supposed to be hard in the best imaginable ways. Just like missions and just like church service and just like raising kids and just like life. It's the hardness, the difficulty that makes us real disciples. But if marriage is supposed to be hard, then divorce is definitely not meant to be easy. Forget the no-fault divorce situation. Uh, what's interesting, actually, now that I think of it, in the plural marriage days in Utah, divorce was made fairly easy, particularly to the wives. 
if a plural wife was in a situation that was just wait, it was not working, then especially since plural marriage allowed for other options to any woman, I mean, that's putting the pressure on the male in, in many ways. Like, oh, I'm not, this is not a good marriage. You're not treating me well. Uh, and even someone who's quote unquote already taken is still an option. Can you imagine your, you, you singles are competing even against married men that are, that are caring for their wives and families in a celestial way? Wow, talk about pressure to, to up your game, uh, the, the current spouse that you have. But the way Brigham Young uh, organized things, because this type of marriage is so hard, way harder than monogamy, then we will allow divorce to come a little more easily. And, and again, it was for the wife, not for the husband. The husband is like, nope, you took on this, th these additional families. You've got you to work things out. Rather for the wife, if it was not working for her, then Brigham made it pretty easy, relatively, for her to leave. Uh, start over. Begin somewhere, now, somewhere else. The irony is we've switched things. If in the days of polygamy, marriage was harder, so divorce was easier... In our day, marriage, it, marriage isn't as hard as it was. Monogamy is easier to handle than polygamy. But sadly, divorce has become easier than ever, even though marriage has become easier too. There's something, something wrong there. As I mentioned, creation, fall, and atonement stages already. Marriage is such a great example of it because in courtship, and dating, and courtship, and falling in love, and getting married on the honeymoon stage, oh, the creation stage of marriage is glorious. But as you enter the fall stage, and I don't mean falling out of love, that, that's not justifiable, but in terms of falling into financial woes, and, and challenges, uh, and busy church callings, and, and kids that demand all of your time and attention, for good reason, they deserve it. Uh, whether it's physical health issues or mental illness that comes on, old age and its own challenges, whatever it might be, you've hit the fall, the fall stage. But the irony is, all too often, we cavalierly scribble out a bill of divorcement just so we can get back to the creation stage with someone else. With its ease and its excitement, until that one gets into the fall, because they all do. That's the story arc of life. And then we just keep jumping back and forth between creation and fall and never go on toward atonement. That's where the Lord is beckoning us to climb. And to anyone, I'll say this, I, I imagine this conversation is hard to hear for many of you. And if it's hard to hear for, through no reason, through no fault of your own, then realize that it shouldn't be hard for you to hear as far as judgment is concerned. It'll, it'll be hard no matter what because you went through hard things. And a hard marriage that is justifiably, that justifiably ends in divorce, it's hard every step. Of it. it was hard in the marriage. It was hard in the divorce. It's hard looking back at it. It's hard the way you view yourself. I have specific people in my mind that are probably thinking this this conversation hurts, Jared. Can, can we move on? I'm just thinking also of those that are in the middle of something difficult. And the thought has crossed their mind. And they've mentally began writing their bill of divorcement 
for those of you in those circumstances, be very cautious and very careful and very patient and have faith in atonement, not just some hope in a new creation. <laughs> atonement will be a new creation, believe me, but it will be with the person that has been, you've been creating yourselves with since the day of your marriage. I, I hope, I hope the Spirit is soothing hearts, but also stiffening spines, uh, because this is something we've got to get better at. We have to overcome the hardness of our hearts, especially in family relationships. If you, again, go back and reread Elder Oaks' talk, Divorce, and he does such an amazing job of explaining the rule and explaining the exceptions that are, ne that are necessary. Uh, another place to see it is in a talk by, by President James E. Faust. He spoke about divorce and then gave what he considered justifiable reason. This is a quote worth, worth holding on to. President Faust, this is the April 1993 General Conference, and he said, What then might be just cause for breaking the covenants of marriage? Over a lifetime of dealing with human problems, I have struggled to understand what might be considered just cause for breaking of covenants. So even he's just, he was a lawyer, he was a, an apostle forever in the First Presidency for a long time. Oh, he dealt with human problems, believe me. But what? To break covenant? You understand how significant this is? This is not how it was supposed to be from the beginning, right? There is no death to you part. Nothing is supposed to part you. Elder Faust says, I confess I do not claim the wisdom or authority to definitively state what is just cause. Only the partners of the marriage can determine this. Wow, first presidency, and even he lacks the authority or wisdom? Well, it's, it's that he lacks the responsibility, really. It's up to the marriage partners. They're the ones that are going to have to decide, and they will be held accountable for their decision. As Elder Faust says, they must bear the responsibility for the train of consequences which inevitably follows if these covenants are not honored. And yes, there's a train of consequences. In fact, there's a train wreck of consequences. But then Elder Faust gives his opinion about what it is. In my opinion, just cause should be nothing less serious than a prolonged and apparently irredeemable relationship which is destructive of a person's dignity as a human being. Now, that's a powerful definition. The, the words that are most important here are prolonged because people can change and irredeemable, which suggests that in their case, they absolutely refuse to ever make those changes. Have you tried? Have you prayed and have you fasted and have you, been, have you hoped and have you forgiven and have you worked together? How prolonged is this? And despite all of those efforts, does it now seem irredeemable? Has it gotten to the point that it has destroyed your, or is destroying your own dignity as a human being? Because the one needs to be preserved, even if the two meant to become one cannot be. Last statement here from President Faust. He says, at the same time, I have strong feelings about what is not provocation for breaking the sacred covenants of marriage. Surely it is not simply mental distress or personality differences or having grown apart or having fallen out of love. All those phrases that people throw around. This is especially so where there are children. 
he says. And we'll meet some children later on today. Now, based on what President Faust says there, there are justifiable reasons for divorce, but those reasons better be justifiable. There's a rule, and yes, there are exceptions, but keep both of those in mind. And maybe more importantly than anything, make sure God is a part of the whole process. Remember what Jesus said in the, in the passages we just read. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. But that doesn't mean that God can't put asunder what God has joined together. Remember the keys of the kingdom that, God, that Jesus promised Peter back in Matthew 16? What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So yes, some bound things need to be loosed. Otherwise, that binding is more like bondage. And we're not talking about amputating limbs. We're talking about sawing off shackles. There are times where that's necessary. But just make sure God is letting you know when, you, when you're in one of those times. I had a friend years ago that was contemplating divorce because she was in a hard situation and was so scared about being condemned for her choice if she went through with a divorce. And I remember asking, whose condemnation are you fearing? If it's the judgment of others, then we got to get past that one way or another anyway. If it's the judgment of God, that's more like it. But if God is part of the decision to be divorced, then you have no reason to fear his judgment. Imagine you going on judgment day and he's like, okay, welcome to the Celestial Kingdom. You're like, no, but don't you remember I got a divorce? And he's like, yeah, of course I remember. I was part of the decision. Don't you remember? I'm not mad that you did that. I, t I told you to. I saw what you, the situation you were in and I freed you from it. So thank you for obe obeying, even though the decision to leave a difficult circumstance was a difficult circumstance of its own. This is hard all the way through. But let God be a part of your marriage. And if it comes to it, let God be a part of your divorce. As, as long as he is your companion through creation and fall, then he will help you continue on toward atonement. Whatever that looks like as far as marriage is concerned. I, I, I hope the Spirit is confirming these things and softening these things. Well, I hope it's softening hearts as well as stiffening spines because I think we need to, to prove those contraries too. Now, Jesus then shifts gears and begins to speak about something related to what we just talked about with marriage, but slightly different as well. And this is a tough one too, okay? Jesus knows so far it's been nothing but tall orders today, okay? But be therefore perfect, well, that's a tall order from the start, and the Lord means it. So notice what he says next in verse 11 and 12. He said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. There's the Lord perfectly balancing justice and mercy as always. He's not breaking bruised reeds. He's not quenching smoking flax. Remember those verses from Isaiah that, that get brought up in the New Testament also? Jesus knew just how hard or soft to go. And it's the Spirit that's always going to give us the same kinds of clarity. The, the Spirit always gives us the right dosage. Okay, So if this is meant for you, let the Spirit confirm that it is. And then here's the statement. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb. And there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. 
and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Now this is a hard saying and Jesus knows it. That's why he's being so careful, so cautious in the way he presents this thought about eunuchs. He starts and he ends it with, <laughs> with some sensitivity. At the front end, he says, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. So careful, you might not be the audience here. This word, this passage is intended for those for whom it's intended. And then he says it again at the end. If you're able to receive it, then please, yes, receive it. But this is kind of a, if you have ears to hear, then let him hear kind of a circumstance. What does he mean by this talk of eunuchs? And to whom is he giving this kind of counsel? He's being really careful, just like he was with marriage and divorce. Remember, it's not just pro or con. It's not just thumbs up and thumbs down on the survey. We have to be more nuanced. We have to be more careful. And so let's be careful here. What Jesus does is he takes the idea of eunuchs and separates them out into three different groups, which is really fascinating. He's, he's complicating things because this is a complicated issue. It's going to require some sophisticated thought, some carefulness on, on our part. So he's being careful on his. Now, what is a eunuch? A eunuch, being literal, is typically a male slave who has been castrated in order to become the bodyguard for the, the harem in the, king, in the kingdom. Now, that, that sounds brutal, and it was. That's why typically it was a slave that was put through that kind of ordeal. But if you're going to guard the women, then who, who's going to guard you? you're going to have to be trustworthy. And I don't trust anyone, so let's, let's make it so that sexual indiscretion is not even a possibility for you. And then I'll trust you to, to be the bodyguard of the women. Now, we talked about eunuchs last year in the Old Testament. And in our discussion of Isaiah 56, we talked about what a hard thing it would be to be a eunuch in Israel, since Israel was so focused on posterity. Uh, to be a dry tree, as it was said, when you're supposed to be a forest of family trees. To have your name cut off in Israel when passing it down to posterity was all important. I mean, this is Abrahamic covenant, right? Seed like the stars and the sand, and here I am without any chance for seed at all. What's the point of even being part of the house of Israel to begin with? And in Isaiah 56... One of the most welcoming passages in all scripture. The Lord reassures every eunuch that I will give you a place and a name that is better than sons and daughters. An everlasting name within my house. Talk about compensatory blessings. They're all right there waiting for those that lay hold of the covenant even from a distance where it's hard to lay hold on that covenant at all. The Lord knows that these eunuchs do not fit the mold, but he more than makes, up, makes it up for, to them as they valiantly try to observe their covenants by sacrifice. Now, take that, that hopefulness in Isaiah 56 and transfer it here to Matthew 19. This is one of the few passages we get in the New Testament about eunuchs, and it's coming from the Savior himself, right on the heels of a conversation about marriage and divorce, about rules and exceptions to rules, about God and man and whose 
putting together and who's breaking apart and is it justifiable or is it, is it not? With all of that as background, what does it mean to be a eunuch in the kingdom of God? What is it like to not fit the mold when you're a member of a family church? That's the mold we're supposed to fit in. Right? You got your proclamation to the world and the family on your wall. What does it say? That family is central to the Creator's plan for His sons and daughters. And hey, if you're in the majority and if you fit the mold, then that proclamation smiles down upon your happy home life. But if you don't fit that mold, then that, the proclamation can, can feel more like a club, beating you into the recognition that you'll never fit in to God's expectations. Your reality falls infinitely low, short of the divine ideal that God has established for us. This is hard, especially as we found out recently in General Conference that half the members of the church are single. Wow. Do half the members of the church feel like they don't fit in? That's, that's tragic if that's the case. And if that's just among singles, what about among the divorced? Do they feel that everyone's judging them and thinking, oh, you, there was no justification for your bill of divorcement. Blended families, it's hard enough to be step-parents and, and get these families and step-siblings coming together. And now I feel like a step-sibling in the household of faith. This is hard. And then add to that the LGBTQ community. And not only is this a family church, this is a heterosexual church. And I don't fit that mold at all. So why do I even try to stay? Well, what's amazing about what the Lord is saying here, to all those who have ears to hear, for whom these sayings are given, please know that the Lord has three different types of eunuchs in mind. And we have to be careful about what group we place ourselves into. Now, the three he lists are the first, he says, those that are born that way. Born eunuchs from their mother's womb. I mean, best case scenario, if a king is looking for a bodyguard for the harem, look for someone with a genetic abnormality to the point that sexual indiscretion is not a possibility. There's no chance for that. So there's no surgery required. And you can just, I trust you with, with this job. That's going to be rare. More common would be group number two, those who are made eunuchs by man, by the king or the master, whoever's worried about his harem. And then a third group, which is fascinating, those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, that last line, for the kingdom of heaven's sake, what's that all about? Well, let's hold on to that for just a moment. We'll come back to it. Because the danger there is to do not take that literally. There was actually an early Christian theologian named Origen, one of the most famous thinkers in the early church, incredible scriptorian, amazing theologian. And according to later history, he took that verse literally and had himself castrated so that he could be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That he would be chased because there was no other option. That he could be trusted with any female catechumen, any investigator, better word, uh, that is investigating Christianity. And, oh, I, you can trust your daughters or wives to me because I will do not. I'm a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, that's, that's intense. And that is not what the Lord intends here. In fact, it's, there's even uh, controversy between, or disagreement between scholars 
of, of did Origen really do this or not? I mean, it says that he did in Eusebius' ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical history. Isn't that a good source? Well, but if the original source came from a, an enemy trying to, oh, kind of knock out the legs from underneath Origen's reputation, because Origen was a controversial figure in terms of some of the doctrine that he taught. There is, seems to be evidence that he did do this, other evidence that there's no way he would have done this. He, talks, he knows the scriptures better than that and knows what to take literally and what not to take literally. Uh, that's a whole controversy I won't get into. But let's, let's, put on, let's put on the side that third group for just a moment, and then we'll come back to what that means to be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. For now, let's wrestle between these other two groups. And what does it mean to be born a eunuch versus made a eunuch by man? Really what we're getting at is, if you don't fit the mold, were you born that way or made that way, by yourself or by others? And another level to that question is, are you to blame or is there no one, is there no need for blame in these circumstances? I mean, think about what we talked about a couple weeks ago with John chapter 9 and the man born blind. And the apostles immediately thought, somebody's got to be blamed for this, right? Uh, whose fault is it? And the Lord says from the get-go, it's nobody's fault. This is, I mean, literally a case of being born that way. He was born blind. And please stop pointing fingers when people are simply born in different circumstances. There's, there's no blame there. There's no sin there. There's no shame there. There's no stigma there. There should be no problem there. This is a chance for the work of God to be made manifest. And that it was made manifest in this blind man. Not just in his healing, but in the type of person he'd become all those years. We talked about that before. I'll keep that in mind as we now shift to this conversation. And as Jesus talks about these eunuchs, were they born that way? Or were they made that way? Is there no one to blame because no, nothing blameworthy has happened? Or is there someone to blame? And things could have been different. Now think of that as you wrestle with any of these molds that, that aren't being fit. We just talked about marriage and divorce. And there are times where it's completely justified. And you're not to blame. There's other times where, yeah, that writing of divorce, that bill of divorcement wouldn't hold up. And Lord, is it I? Yeah, it's I. Or yes, it, yes, it's them. And things could have been different. Where it's tricky when it comes to LGBT issues. And were people born that way? Or were they made that way? Are they to blame for experiencing same-sex attraction? Or are they not to blame for experiencing that at all? The, the jury's been out on that for a long, long time. And the verdict has changed with time. It's really fascinating. Like I said before, history doesn't correct itself. It overcorrects itself. Well, that's been the case on these issues too. In the past, any kind of homosexuality, for not even a behavior, but just like what you experience those feelings, you are wrong. You may, must have done something devious to get to this point, and you are guilty without having to do a thing. We're going to have to fix you. We're going to have to have to change you. 
and, and science agreed that that was possible and religion agreed that that was possible. Psychiatrists and psychologists were working on, I mean, Time Magazine ran an article uh, back in the 60s about, oh, I think, I think we're this close to finding a cure for homosexuality. It's just interesting to see that history that everyone was off. But were they completely off? That's the question. Because where has the pendulum swung in our day? That, of course, it's born. And as a result, there's no blame. There's no accountability. There's no problem. And I worry about the new mold just as much as I worry about the old one. The old one said, this is the rule. There are no exceptions. Today we have a different rule, but again, we still say there's no exceptions. And, and I think we're wrong on both, at both time periods, because there's a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> we need a box to be able to write some notes instead of just saying thumbs up and thumbs or thumbs down. Because let's put it this way, against what people said in the past, is it possible that a person is simply born in a condition that doesn't fit molds? LGBTQIA+, the whole acronym. And I have friends and students and family members that I can put under every letter. I'm talking to gay friends that have said, <laughs> did I choose this? How dare you even suggest it? I know the gospel is true. I would much prefer to fit the heterosexual norm because then it'd be easy to live the, that part of the gospel. I would never have chosen this for myself. I kept begging God to choose something different for me, to fix me, to change me. No, I was, I was born this way. And I knew that from a very early age and hated myself for it. It's to them that I think the Lord would say there are some who are born eunuchs of their mother's womb. And please do not feel guilty. Please do not feel less than. Please don't feel broken. This is for the work of God to be made manifest in you. And so no sin, no shame, no stigma. It's okay. But have we overswung things to the point that that's, that explains everything? And not only does that justify the condition in mortality, but it also justifies the behavior as we live into that lifestyle. Because I do worry that we've gotten to a point that justifies everything and normalizes everything to the point that people that were not born that way start to wonder, maybe I, maybe I was. I mean, the brain is a develop, it's a moving target through much of early life. Puberty hits and you're trying to make sense of who you are in so many areas. And if you were at all different from the old mold, do you automatically get shoved into the new one? That I'm a tomboy, therefore I must be lesbian, or I'm sensitive and artistic, therefore I must be gay? I'm different from this group, so I must be part of this group. I worry about that. Elder Maxwell called it the normalization of aberration, and he called it the most subtle form of intimidation. And, and do you feel intimidated? 
as things have been so normalized that, well, this is how it has to be. And so we're going to justify everything. And, and there's no behavior that is not inborn. And behaviors are okay, not just identities. We have to be more careful than that. We have to flex those muscles and develop that inner core strength where we can prove contraries here and balance love and law, truth and tolerance, chastity and charity. Born and made. Those that are on one extreme of the political or ideological spectrum, you've got to make room for those that were born eunuchs of their mother's womb and not assign any blame or culpability or guilt or shame. And those on the opposite extreme, politically, ideologically, must be careful not to justify everything and not to, not to realize that the, culture, the, the currents of culture are pulling some people downstream that do not belong in those exceptional circumstances. This is again why we have to be so careful and self-aware to whom are these sayings given? If can you receive them? Are you able to? Or am I experimenting just because society says that, that I should? Am I asking myself questions that complicate things? Has the old exception become the new rule? And where there was blame everywhere before, and that's wrong. Now there's no blame anywhere, and that is wrong too. I, I hope that I'm being sufficiently sensitive here. <laughs> Full disclosure, this is, I don't know, probably my 10th take on this part of the lesson. Because uh, I keep wondering, am I being careful enough? I, I don't want to be made an offender for a word, but more than that, I don't want to offend anyone with my words. I'm, I'm, you can't see it through my white shirt, but I've got a, I've, I've got a six-pack under there. I, I'm flexing every muscle that I can to try to strike the proper balance. And what I'm trying to wrestle with here is the dual realities that some eunuchs are born and other eunuchs are made. And sometimes we find ourselves in exceptional circumstances through no fault of our own or anyone else's but sometimes we find ourselves in certain circumstances because we've made poor choices or because society is normalizing poor choices and getting us to ask questions that, that we never needed to. May we be sufficiently self-aware and sufficiently sensitive to the Spirit that we can ask the Lord Lord, is it I? Are there changes that need to be made? Do I need to swim harder upstream against the currents of culture? Or is this simply who I am? And the works of God are being made manifest in me. As either way, I am choosing to make myself a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake.
This is where no matter which group you're part of, group one or group two, we all grow into group three and decide some things. This is now accountability and taking responsibility for it. This is now behavioral. And I'm making some decisions about how I will act on feelings I, I do or don't have. On whether I was born or made, I'm now choosing to do something or not do certain things for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So in some ways, while it's important to wrestle with those first two possibilities and try diligently to discern where I am, which group I belong to in the first two, either way, the real question is what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about the tendencies that I was born with or the tendencies that I've developed? What am I going to do about the circumstances I find myself in, whether, whether I had anything to do with it or not? And whatever those circumstances might be, single or married, divorced or not, uh, LGBT, heterosexual, homosexual, you name it. Guilty, innocent, no matter where we are, we have choices to make about where we're going to go from here. And will I make myself a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake? And now we need to shift somewhat what we're talking about with eunuchs. Not just in terms of someone who doesn't fit the mold in a family church. But someone who doesn't fit the mold in a sin-sick, sex-saturated world. And up against those things, I choose to be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. I choose to be chaste. In a marriage, that means I choose to be loyal and true, faithful to my wife. As a single person, that means I choose to, be, to live the law of chastity. I choose to be celibate. In an LGBTQ situation, that's another question you have to wrestle with. Where am I on the Kinsey scale, for example? Heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, to what degree... Would a mixed orientation marriage be a possibility for me or not? If it is, if to those who identify as bisexual or those that are homosexual but are somewhere in the middle to the point that, yeah, I could see a, a mixed orientation marriage working. I have friends in that exact situation. When I went and spoke at North Star a couple of years ago, I was so impressed with the people that I met there people in the LGBTQ community and people in the kingdom of God that are choosing to be eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. I was in awe of their spiritual strength. In many ways, I felt like I was among my spiritual superiors who were living the same law of chastity that I was, but were living it at greater self-sacrifice than I, that were observing their covenants by sacrifice in powerful, powerful ways. For some, that meant a mixed orientation marriage. And I remember meeting one sweet man and just throwing my arms around him and thanking him for, for being a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. I said, your genes are absolutely beautiful. I'm so glad you found a way to pass them on. That you have children. That you understand the difficulty and your wife understands the difficulty, but you are making it work for children's sake that received incredible genes from both mom and dad.
I'm so glad that you have posterity among us. And I met others that were eunuchs in the kingdom of, for the kingdom of heaven's sake by living a celibate life because for them the thought of a mixed orientation marriage just was an absolute impossibility. But also the thought of going and marrying, entering into a same-sex marriage was an ideological impossibility. That, no, I know the plan of salvation and I know it's true and I know God's plan and I don't know all how it's going to work. But I do trust his compensatory blessings. I do trust the place and name that he has for me. And I'm excited someday to see how it could possibly be better than sons and daughters. But they're holding out hope. I sometimes worry that maybe it's the fact that as Latter-day Saints, we kind of grew out of a Protestant environment with all of its kind of inherent anti-Catholicism as part of the inheritance, unfortunately that we view the apostasy in too dark a, a, a way for those dark ages. And we learn that from Protestants that wanted to justify the Reformation. Are we doing the same to justify the Restoration? Well, in the same kind of vein, are we so kind of under the surface anti-Catholic to the point that we're anti-celibacy as well? In, in Catholic circles, celibacy was the higher sacrament, and then marriage was the lesser one for those that couldn't hack celibacy. So we'll, we'll acknowledge marriage, and we'll make it a second place. We'll at least include it among the sacraments. Now, for Latter-day Saints, have we reversed that? And if we said, no, 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 marriage is the ultimate sacrament. So celibacy not only is a, a second place, it's, it's not even a distant second. Get it off the list. And I worry... Are we doing harm to people by not honoring the fact that they are living their covenants by sacrifice and have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake? That I will choose to be celibate. I had one student that was wondering, I can't see myself ever getting married, but I can't see myself ever leaving the church. I know it's true. I love the Lord. I love his, his plan. And I know he has a plan for me. Don't just don't know what it looks like. And he was asking me, what do you think my life will look like? And I said, you know, we often go to college thinking that every general ed education class is required. Typically they are, right? You got to have your freshman English class and you got to take, uh, you know, your history or your American, you know, government. You have to take uh, math classes and you got to take science. There's just certain things you got to check off those boxes and then you can get into more, something more specific with your major. I said to him, you know, I never took math in college. I tested out of it in high school, and good riddance. Closest I ever come to math now is teaching the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. That's as close as I want to get. So my college years were different from the start. I never took a class that everyone else thought was required. Now, I know it seems like the fatherhood class is required in this life, and that the marriage course is required for graduation, too. It typically is. It's a general, general ed. But there are some for whom it is given where your counselor will say to you, actually, no, I've got a different class for you. You tested out of that. But have you considered the celibacy course? Now, that's a tough one. There's no waiting list on that class. 
but the contents of the curriculum is as soul-expanding in its own way as marriage and family is in its way. In fact, it's a class that everyone signs up for. God automatically enrolls you in it from birth. The question is, does he want you to stay in that course and keep taking upper division courses within it? Or will he shift you from the celibacy track to the marriage and family track? Chastity covers the entire, covers both tra tracks, okay? That, that's the requirement from the get-go for all of us. I just wonder, do we need to do more to elevate and honor celibacy as a sacrament along the lines of marriage that those for whom marriage is not a possibility, they can be seen as someone doing the same heavy lifting, the same diligent discipleship, the same observing of covenants, and maybe even observing them, like I said, with a little more self-sacrifice than the rest. In some ways, we all need to be eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. I don't say this to diminish the sacrifice and challenge of any of my LGBT brothers and sisters. But I will say this, that while some of God's children must overcome or, and learn to navigate same-sex attraction, all of God's children must learn to overcome and navigate same-self attraction. That we are all drawn to self preservation and self-gratification and self-aggrandizement. Selfishness is one of the universal sins just like pride is. And for us to overcome same self-attraction, to put off the natural man and ask the Lord, what would you have me do and what would you have me be? To a degree, for all, to all of us, he would say, will you become a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake? Will you bridle your passion so you can be filled with love? Will you limit the ways that you give, that you, that you lean into the world's ways and focus yourself, all your heart, might, mind, and strength on the kingdom of God? If you put that first, then everything else will be added unto you. So whether born, whether made, when all is said and done, we all need to become what the Lord is asking of us. And the best example is the one the Lord just then gives, right on the heels of this fascinating conversation. If you go back to Matthew 19, pick up in verse 13, Then were there brought unto him little children. Mark calls them young children. Luke says infants. In some ways it doesn't matter. At any age we're going to need Jesus. Okay? And compared to him, we're all little, little children. Well, they were brought unto him. And if they were brought, it does suggest they were probably too young to come on their own. His parents picking them up and bringing their babies. Uh, his parents of teenagers, and the, ki the kids were a little too ill-willed, and so they were brought to Jesus, and like, please, can you help them with this? Well, either way, Matthew says, they were brought that he should put his hands on them and pray. Mark and Luke just say that he should touch them. That's it, just a touch. Whatever it takes to get your kids close enough for Jesus to reach out to them, that's what these parents are doing. 
Jesus, will you please just touch my child? Touch their heart, touch their mind, touch their suffering body. Take them up in your, in your arms, put your hands on them, pray for them, please bless them. Now, the next line is a hard one. And we've got to be careful before we condemn the apostles too harshly. It says that the disciples rebuked them, rebuked these parents that are bringing their children, their infants, their young, rebuked them? Now, again, before you jump to conclusions, look at the JST. This changes everything. Because the JST clarifies, as the disciples rebuked them, this is what they said to these parents, there is no need, for Jesus hath said, such shall be saved. Wow, interesting. That does change everything. They're not mad at these parents. They're just trying to protect the Savior's time, limited as it is. The end is coming. The crowds, the multitudes always thronging him. And for them to say, there's already a long, long waiting list. And your children are going to make it. They don't need Jesus spiritually as much as all of these adults do because they're in the unaccountable years. Even, heaven forbid, if it's a sickness that they're struggling, something physical, and you're worried about their own life and death, their eternal life has already been assured. Remember, don't fear those that can do damage to the body. Only fear those that can do damage to the soul. No one and no, no thing can do damage to the soul of these sweet children. So you're good to go. Come what may. Jesus' time and energies need to be focused more on the accountable. Remember, he didn't come, the physician didn't come for the whole. He came for the sick. And to borrow the language of Mormon in Moroni chapter 8, children, little children are alive in Christ, completely covered by his atoning grace. No, no worries about them. So please... Can you go to the back of the line? Then maybe this is time for crumbs that fall from the master's table because the people that are here need the bread of life far more than the little children do. They're okay. Now it's with that in mind, hopefully that softens our view of the apostles here. They're not trying to be mean or anti-child. They, they would have loved the primary, I'm sure. But they just thought, you know what? The kids are going to be okay with or without primary. They're, they're covered. We need to pour all our resources into young men and young women. Believe me, they need that. Well, we need more resources in, in Relief Society and Elders Quorum. The, the parents are the ones going to pot. <laughs> if we could flip things and have the children raise the parents, all would be well. Okay, But yeah, the parents are the ones that need the Savior's help now. So that's where the apostles are coming from. But I love the, the Lord's response. Jesus says to them, Suffer, little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Mark's account is even better. At first it says that Jesus was much displeased with his disciples for what they'd done. So he's like, come on guys, what are you thinking here? He's, he's not happy with their response. Then he says the same thing that we saw in Matthew about suffering little children to come unto me, of such is the kingdom of heaven. But then he adds this. This is Mark 10, 15 and 16. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. 
So it's not just let the children come, but you should come more like a little child. They're the, one, they're the best examples there are. A little child shall lead them. Yeah, that's how Isaiah prophesied the millennial day would be. Well, if we ever hope to get to the millennial day, we better start following the little children too. Receive the kingdom like they do. And then Mark adds, and he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Which is even more personable than what we saw in Matthew. Matthew, yeah, he laid his hands on them just like they asked. But in, in Mark, he just scooped them up, <laughs> these, little, these little children. Lifted them up in his arms. We talked about that before too in another moment where he brought a child forth to be in the midst of them as the greatest of all. He lifted them, brought them up to the same level as the adults, or vice versa, brought the levels down, or brought the adults down to the level of little children. I love that Jesus picks them up, takes them in his arms, lays his hands on them, blesses them, I'm sure he felt blessed by them as well. No wonder he wanted them to come. It actually makes me wonder if they were doing him good and not just him doing them good. Remember in 3 Nephi 17 when Jesus is there among the multitudes of the land bountiful and he asks them to bring forth their little children? Ah, just the scene. He groans in spirit before he lays hands on them and blesses them. He feels for them. He worries about their future, growing up in a wicked world. And theirs wasn't even going to be very wicked. It, it was millennial peace for 200 years. Imagine how he must groan as he looks at what our little children are in for. But to be surrounded by them, to be almost protected by their innocence. I know Joseph Smith said that once. He said, I feel no fear because I know the children of Nauvoo are praying for me. That's sweet. And for the Lord who loved little children and just, can I surround myself with them? In some ways, the apostles were right. They don't need me as much as everyone else does. But I need them. Every time I've associated with primary, I've often said to them, if Jesus came to visit our ward, where would he go? I don't think he'd beeline to the bishop's office. I doubt he'd visit the elders' quorum or the Relief Society first. I think he'd come to the primary and just sit on one of those little chairs <laughs> and gather the children close, pick them up, pick a bunch up on their, hold them on his knees, and just lay hands and reach out to everyone. Make sure there's personal contact. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. When he says, "Suffer." the little children to come unto me. That just means to let them, allow them. But sadly, I think some people take that word literally and think, oh, children come to earth to make you suffer. Well, I will admit that children come to earth to make you work. And they come to earth to provide for we par to, uh, to us parents a test. I love this, the Spanish phrase for to take a test. In, in English, you take a test. In Spanish, you suffer a test. Sufrir un examen. And that verb suffer is so appropriate for what we do with tests. Is that what the Lord's hinting at? Suffer the little children. They will provide tests in life. They'll test your patience. They'll, they'll test your faith sometimes. But really what they're testing is the natural man. And they're trying to help you pass that test by overcoming it. 
it is worth the work to raise children. It is worth whatever suffering of soul you go through as you see those prodigal sons and daughters wander. It, will, it is worth the effort that is required for you to bring them to Jesus close enough where he can reach out and touch them. Suffer them to come unto me. Yeah. In fact, if you bring them, you'll be getting closer to me too in the process. Now with that ultimate visual aid of, of such is the kingdom of heaven, be like them, let them come, come to me even when you don't think you need me. That's again part of that. They're saved. They're okay. They don't need Jesus. Oh yeah, they do. We need him every hour in joy and pain. We need him awake on our boat, even when it's smooth sailing, not just when the tempest erupts. We need to come unto Christ, maybe especially when we don't think we need him, because we always need him. And so come. We see that in the children. What will we see in the next scene? Because here the camera pans and goes from the lowly up to the lofty from these little children to someone that went from people, someone people look down on, literally, to someone they would look up to, metaphorically. The next story is the account of the rich young ruler. So go with me to Matthew 19, verse 16, and let's meet him. And behold, one came. Now Luke calls him a certain ruler. That's where we get the idea of a ruler. Uh, we, it becomes obvious soon that he's rich, and Matthew includes the detail that he's young. So cobble them all together, and here we get the rich young ruler. So far, just one came. He said unto him, unto Jesus, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now in the Mark account, it's the same question, but he's even more humble in asking it. Mark 10, verse 17, There came one running and kneeled to him, and asked him that same question. I love that. He's running, trying to sprinting, trying to get to Jesus as quickly as he can. He recognizes the difference of, I have, do not deserve to stand before this man. I kneel before him. And there on his, on his knees, he asks that same question. What should I do? I just want to be saved. What does it take? Now, Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? Remember, that's how the man addresses Jesus from the start, good master. Jesus <laughs> eliminates that title. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. You see, Jesus was a master at deflecting praise back to its rightful target. <laughs> Compare that to most of the people we'll meet in the rest of this week's lesson, and uh, the rest of us have a lot of growing up to do. Jesus just takes it and passes it on. Don't call me good, call God good. But then he does answer the man's question. What should you do? Well, here you go. If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. There you go. Obey. Interesting that Jesus, who is the source of all grace, prior prioritizes obedience here. So it's not cheap grace. It's not faith without works. It's definitely not works without faith. That's probably even worse. But he does. If, if you love me, keep my commandments, he says. If you want to enter into life, then learn to obey. Follow the way, the truth, and the life, and you will follow me into life eternal. But it is, it is walking my way, not walking yours. So yes, obedience, the first law of heaven. Then, verse 18, the man says unto him, Well, which? 
Jesus was kind of vague. Keep the commandments. This man wants to be more specific. Which ones? Now, I hope that he's not hinting that, like, well, are some commandments more important than others? I hope he's not suggesting, well, can we be selective in our obedience? Are there some I can kind of get away with and not have to, li to live in order to receive eternal life? So, which? Now, the Lord gives him some answers. He said, thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Those are the, the do, thou shalt nots from the Ten Commandments. He goes on, honor thy father and thy mother. And then he broadens them to encompass basically the whole, the whole second great commandment from the start. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Mark, by the way, includes one other one that's not on Matthew's list. It's a, he says, defraud not, which is really interesting. It's not that, like that wasn't on the Ten Commandments. Defraud not. It's like, well, I'm sure there's been a lot of people that have been checking off the box on the Big Ten, but have been looking for legal loopholes ever since. And so, you know, don't defraud one another. Now, whatever, whatever list you choose, Jesus has been pretty clear and pretty comprehensive as far as, here's all these commandments you need to be keeping. To which the young man responds, all these things have I kept from my youth what lack I yet? Now, with that statement, this is an impressive young man. He's been that obedient his whole life, from his youth up. It's as if he, maybe there's some, some toxic perfectionism in him. Maybe there's a sense of, I'm, a, I'm an obedient person. I came wired that way. I do not break rules, but I just, I still feel like I'm falling short. So surely there's some other commandment I haven't received yet. And so maybe it wasn't selective obedience that he was asking for when he asked the Lord, which? Maybe it's, are there any that I'm not already keeping? Because I still feel like I'm missing something. So that what lack I yet is incredible as far as his own openness and his willingness. He's got a good heart, an obedient soul. In some ways, it reminds me of, what, section 59 of the Doctrine and Covenants? Yeah, section 59 talks about, it, to the faithful, to the worthy, you'll be blessed, you'll be crowned, you'll receive revelations in, in their time. But he also says among the crowning jewels of God's blessings, that includes commandments, not a few. I love that. We talked about that a couple years ago. But to be crowned with commandments, not a few. Sadly, most of us want to get rid of the commandments he's already given us. Like, are there legal loopholes that we can sneak through? And no, to the faithful, it's, wow, obedience is what brings happiness into, into my life. Obedience is misery prevention. Now, obedience gives me a clear conscience and, and opens the windows of heaven. And so if obedience to the current commandments does that, wouldn't obedience to additional commandments open it even wider? In which case, bring it on. Crown me with commandments, not a few. Again, not to be overzealous, not to be toxically perfectionistic, but to grow up in God and to learn line upon line and precept upon precept and to become more and more like Him. Please raise me to a higher level of living. In other words, what other commandments do I not yet have? What lack I yet? What a question. It, it's a lot like the Lord is it I introspection of the apostles at the Last Supper. If we had the guts to ask God that question, 
Ooh, I have a feeling he'd have a long list. I know he would for me anyway. What lack I yet? It's with that in mind that Mark's insertion here is so appropriate. This is chapter 10, verse 21. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. I love this pause in the narrative. For Matthew, we, we, we know the story. He comes and asks what else I need to do, and the Lord tells him. And we'll see what he tells him in just a second. But to pause for a moment to allow Mark to include this glorious detail. The Lord loved him. This young man who came running, who came and knelt before him, who's been trying his very best to be obedient his entire life. And the Lord, the Lord loves those who try. And he sees this man, imperfect as he is, one thing thou lackest, right? In Matthew, uh, the man asks, what lack I yet? In Mark, Jesus lets him know, one thing thou lackest. You're still not there yet. But you don't have, to, I'm not going to wait on your perfection for me to give you my love. That's how generous he is with his grace. I love you already. I love everyone. Every disciple is a disciple that Jesus loves. And for Jesus to love us without requiring our perfection before that love kicks in. You understand the difference there? That love isn't a reward of our goodness or our perfection. God just loves us no matter what. But he also does nudge us toward greater perfection. I love you how you are and I'll love you how you'll be and let's keep growing up together in God. The fact that he says, I love you, or the fact that he looks at him with love, I should say, doesn't mean that Jesus will never say one thing thou lackest, and vice versa. The fact that Jesus says one thing thou lackest, or in our case, many things thou lackest, doesn't mean he doesn't love us. That, that's a proving of contraries also. I love you just the way you are, and I'm not content to leave you there. I love you enough to point out the places where you could love me a little bit better through better obedience. It's amazing. And then the Lord gives him that one thing that he lacked. Verse 21, Jesus said unto him, if thou wilt be perfect, you're incredibly obedient to this point, but you want to take it up a notch? You want to be perfect? Here's how you do it in your case. And these are all oh, tailor-made to each individual. Here's the counsel for the rich young ruler. Go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor. Luke says, distribute to the poor, which suggests there's probably a multitude of worthy causes, worthy recipients. Go ahead and distribute it throughout to the poor. And then the promise, thou shalt have treasure in heaven. So I'll more than make it up to you. How's that for compensatory blessings? Now, empty your treasury on earth, and I will fill your treasury in heaven. And now that you're a little bit more mobile, not so tied down to your assets, the Lord then says, come and follow me. Mark's version is even better. Come and take up the cross and follow me. And then the sad aftermath. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. He's even more sorrowful in Mark. It says he was sad at that saying and went away grieved. And then both end with the same conclusion for he had great possessions. Luke makes it literally parallel. He was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. 
and maybe the level of very <laughs> was the same. How much are you being asked to give? Oh, then how devastated am I, am, am I when I realize I can't give it? I wonder, by the way, if he was the only sorrowful one. I have a feeling Jesus was even more sorrowful when he realized that this man that he loved had learned obedience but was not yet ready to learn sacrifice. My first mission president taught me that. That we can't even step into the realm of sacrifice until we've mastered the realm of obedience. That sacrifice is on that second mile. Walking the first was just doing what we were asked. This man had mastered the first step, obedience. He was not yet ready to step into sacrifice and consecration. Think about the covenants that we make. And there is an order there. There seems to be a crescendo there to get to the point where we truly can give away all that the Lord would have us give, anything that's keeping us back from Him. I'll say this too. This idea of consecration on the rich man's part, because is, I mean, again, if we have to be careful, are we going to take eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake too literally? Perish the thought. Are we really being asked to sell all that we have? Is he... Is this where the monks get their vow of, of poverty? We know vow, vows of celibacy, uh, but vows of poverty, that, that's what a lot of the monks throughout Catholic history have done as well. And it's an incredible, noble sacrifice. But is that what we're supposed to do? Renounce all ownership, sell everything, and give to the poor? Because the, cha the challenge there is then we become the poor, and then somebody has to give to us? And are we just going to be playing hot potato with... <laughs> What the things are things that we're trying to avoid and get rid of? Or I wonder, is, is this the one thing that this young man lacks? Mine might be different. I'm, I'm not a very materialistic person. It's, it's, I, I don't care much about stuff. If I can buy a few used books off Amazon and keep reading, then I'm a happy man. Uh, but man, there's other things that I lack big time. And the Lord is letting me know about those if I have the humility to ask. So what do we lack? What is it that's keeping me from truly coming into Christ and following Him? What am I taking up that keeps me from taking up the cross? And is there something that's leading me to put my eggs in earth's basket instead of seeking treasure in heaven? For this particular man, he was rich. And that was something that was keeping him the, the, the riches of Christ's goodness, to, to be rich toward God, like we learned about the, rich, the foolish rich man, right? The rich fool last week. Oh, don't be a rich fool here. Give it up, because maybe it's the holding on to your riches that is making you seem so foolish. Maybe it's the fact that you're a ruler and are looking down upon those that are beneath you, and maybe you need to get down to their level and realize you're no better than they. Elevate the little children. <laughs> Bring down those on the high horse. Give. Maybe it's just a matter of liquidating some of your assets. Again, if it's all bound up in, in oh, real estate, for example, and you're stuck in that spot, then it's going to be hard for you to go follow an itinerant preacher that has no, <laughs> no place to lay his head. If it's in possessions... Maybe that's what you own is now owning you. 
maybe it's a matter of selling what you have so you liquidate some of those assets so you can be a little bit more mobile, a little bit more flexible in terms of where your finances go. And I can give a little to this poor person. I can honor this, I can help this leper. I can provide for this widow. I can, I've got a lot of options now because I've sold the big things and now have a lot of smaller things that I can distribute among those that need it. I even wonder about it this way. How'd you get all that stuff, you rich young ruler? You had all this money and it, because when he says sell what you have, I guess the money you had has now been converted into stuff that you bought. For whom? For yourself. Well, you know, if you sold those things and got your money back, it's almost like having a do-over. And this time, maybe you'll water your neighbor's lawn. Maybe you'll buy some shoes for a companion. Maybe you'll find other people that could use some of that money. Even as you realize that some of it needs to be spent on yourself. Let's just try again, shall we? Let's, let's, let's start over and be a little bit more generous this time. But again, that's the challenge. He couldn't do it. What he owned owned him. It had too much of a hold on his heart. And even though he obeyed, he couldn't consecrate. And he sorrowed over it. That, in some ways, might be the saddest part of the whole thing. That he's such a good guy, someone Jesus loves, someone that's so obedient, someone that wants to be better, and has his heart in the right place and a righteous desire, and what lack I yet, and I just want eternal life. And But what the Lord asked hit too close to home. It had too great a hold of my heart. And this man couldn't overcome the third temptation in the wilderness. Even though the one who was asking him to do it had the riches of eternity to give as a reward. Verse 23, this makes sense then. Then said Jesus unto his disciples. Mark says he looked around about first. So he's kind of looking around, seeing people's eyes. How are they responding to the conversation they just overheard? And he says to them, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke's version flips it around a little bit. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? Both of those versions are good to wrestle with. On the one hand, is it, oh, they're hardly going to make it. It's like, no, it's, they're hardly going to get in. Hardly anybody's going to be able to overcome the, the draw of the materialism and worldliness. Or is it, man, it's going to be hard for them. They will, I mean, they'll make it, but it's, they'll hardly make it. They'll have to work hard at overcoming their covetousness and not being rich fools, but being, being humble disciples. Either way, he then uses this interesting analogy. Again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Wow. <laughs> We've had all kinds of hard sayings today. A, a camel through the eye of a needle? Now, I've heard some people soften that and say, well, uh, uh, the eye of the needle was actually the kind of a nickname for this small opening uh, in, a, in a walled city. And for, a camel could get through it, but they would have to unpack their, their burdens first. 
and kind of crawl through on their knees. And so that's all it's asking for is if you've, if you've come overloaded with thing, self-serving kinds of stuff, then yeah, you'll have to unpack some of that and then humble yourself, kneel, and then crawl on through this, this city gate. But yeah, camels can come through no problem once they overcome that other stuff. Well, that's a really cool analogy. Unfortunately, there's really no evidence that there were little gates like that. It sounds kind of weird. Why would they do that anyway? Uh, in some ways, is that, is that more of a modern attempt to soften a hard saying and make it more palatable who, to people who don't want to give it all up? Uh, some have even said, well, if you look at the original Greek, the word for camel is only like one letter away from the word for rope. So it's probably just kind of a, some monk missed a, a jot or a tittle somewhere. Huh? And so really this is just, it's, you got to thread the needle here. It's a rope going through the eye of a needle. And that's doable. You just got to be careful. You know, you got to kind of lick it uh, and then spin it and then put it through and then you pull, you know, it's like threading the needle in anything. It takes some work, but it's doable. It's not that bad. Well, again, is that softening what the Lord intended to be hard? By the way the apostles react to Jesus' words, I don't think they had a soft saying in mind. I think they took Jesus at his word and saw the camel, which was the biggest animal in the area. I mean, not, not a lot of elephants around the Middle East at this time, but, but camels, oh yeah. And the eye of a needle, what they would, something they'd be used to as they're sewing things up or mending their nets, those old fishermen. There's no way a camel can fit through the eye of the needle. And this does seem to be the hyperbole that Jesus intended, some shock and awe to shake us out of our easy sense of entitlement or covetousness or, yeah, it's not, surely the standard isn't that high. And not just the standard of worldliness and materialism, but whatever one thing we lack. If the Lord is serious about, I cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, then thinking we're going to get into heaven without having overcome the one thing we lack, oh yeah, you try to force a camel through a needle's eye. That, that's not going to happen. The Lord does not let us in when we still lack those things. He loves us through the whole process, but he loves us enough to be just as well as merciful. He loves us enough to help us get to the goal. Okay? Not just to lower the bar, but to help us clear it. That's what he's after. Now, how's, how's this for the apostles' reaction? Which again suggests that, that there's hyperbole here. Verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed saying, who then can be saved? It's like, that's impossible. No camel can ever be forced through the eye of a needle. So, so how, how's anybody going to make it? Now, Jesus beheld them. He probably loved them too. And said unto them, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In the Mark version, it's slightly different. As soon as Jesus said, how hardly shall the rich enter the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, Mark adds this detail. This is chapter 10, verse 24. The disciples were astonished at his words. He hasn't even gotten to the camel part yet. Okay, Just the thought of, eh, it's going to be hard for the rich to get in. And they're like, what? They're astonished. Then Jesus says, children, which is so beautiful, so gentle of him. Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? 
Then he brings up the camel and the eye metaphor. And then it says, and they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Do you sense the astonishment growing and growing in the Mark version? They were astonished when he just said, yeah, it's going to be hard for the wealthy to get in. They're like, really? Man. And he's like, yeah, I mean, come on, kids. Come on, children. If you trust in riches, there's no way you're going to get in. It's like camel through the eye of a needle. And now their astonishment, which was at this level, is now greatly astonished. It's astonished out of measure. It's like shock and awe. There's no way then. How's anybody going to be saved? And there the Lord can reassure, well, it's not going to be up to you. It's going to be up to God and people that turn to God. Because notice how Mark clarified it. It's not the rich that will find it impossible. It's those that trust in riches that will find it impossible. That's a huge difference. Uh, the second half of our year, where, when we're in the letters of Paul, we'll see that it's not money that's the root of all evil, but the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's not riches that's the problem for this rich young ruler. It's the trust in riches, which again might be, might be what's keeping him from selling it. If I sell what I have, then uh, it's like what we talked about. We're back to last week with the, with the rich fool. That I'm putting, placing my trust there. And I, have, I don't have an abundance mentality. I have a scarcity mentality. So i got to keep it all. I have to store it all. I have to eat every meal like it's my last. Because I don't own a fridge. Right? That story I told you last week. You understand what? There's such an interesting detail there. It's the trust in riches that's a problem. Because it keeps you from trusting God. It's what you're holding on your back that's keeping you from taking up the cross. It's being tied down to your possessions that's keeping you from coming up and following me. So, how are we going to do this? How are we going to overcome that kind of trust in worldly things? We've got to come to know the Lord and trust fully in Him. And that takes a leap of faith. <laughs> that takes stepping out of mere obedience and seeing the blessings come into sacrifice, where we don't know if the blessings will come. Consecration, where it feels like I'm giving and I haven't yet received. Oh, is this going to work? Well, rich young ruler, I wish you had the faith to trust me in all of this. That's the focus of the JST of this Mark passage. In Mark 10, 26, the inspired version says, with men that trust in riches, it is impossible. There's no way a camel's getting through there but not impossible with men who trust in God and leave all for my sake. For with such, all these things are possible. Again, it's all a matter of trust here. Trust in God. He'll make it possible. He'll make it possible for you to, to squeeze through the eye of a needle. He'll make it possible for you to overcome the one thing you lack. He will more than make up for whatever sacrifice you give. In fact, at the end of the day, it won't be a sacrifice. It will be an investment with an incredible rate of return. You've got to trust him, though. Something similar in the JST of the Matthew version of all this. Matthew 19, 26, the inspired version says, With men this is impossible, but if they will forsake all things for my sake, with God whatsoever things I speak are possible. That's it. Just let it go. Forsake the world. Trust in God. Not rich in man or rich toward man, but rich toward God. He'll provide for your every need. That's what I was trying to do for this rich young ruler. 
Where do you think his earthly treasures came from? Ultimately from me. And if he'd just give them up, trusting that I had something even greater to give, then you'd leave that bird in the hand. Because it's not like I'm trying to go after two birds in the bush. I'm turning to the Lord of the burning bush that cares for every sparrow. Oh, there's birds of plenty. God provides for them. He'll provide for you. Now, it's with that. The rich young ruler's gone, right? He went away sorrowful. And Jesus is just left there with a bunch of jaw-dropped apostles looking at him going, how on earth is anybody going to make it? But then good old Peter speaks up and thinks, wait a minute, I, what did Jesus just say? If you'll sell what you've got, just leave it all behind, forsake the world and follow me, I'll give you the treasures of heaven? Huh. Now, you can picture Peter's mind, uh, the wheels turning, because in verse 27, then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all. I mean, go back to the Sea of Galilee. You'll see my nets still there. The old boats, I, I, I got rid of the whole business. I've forsaken all. I mean, even Matthew here left the receipt of custom. Uh, you name it. All 12 of us have left things behind. We left it all. We followed thee. So check the box on that one too. Now in the Luke version, Peter stops right there. Okay? He's just hinted that these apostles have done everything the rich young ruler couldn't. Uh, but, but in Matthew, <laughs> in Matthew's version, Peter goes on and asks the question that Luke left unspoken. Okay? Peter looks a little bit better in Luke here. But in Matthew, when he says, hey, we forsook all, he didn't. We fo we're following you, he couldn't. So now the question, what shall we have therefore? So far, it's been par parallel. He didn't forsake, we did. He didn't follow, we did. You promised him treasures in heaven. So what are you promising us? Now Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me, and that, that's you, you're right, you have forsaken all, you have followed me. Well, what are you going to get? I'll tell you. In the regeneration, and the JST changes that to the resurrection, so you're going to have to wait for this, but it's coming. In the resurrection, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now on the one hand, that, that could be the exact kinds of, kind of answer that Peter was hoping for. Wait, we get to sit on thrones beside your all-powerful throne, thou King of Kings? Now remember this, because we're going to see some, some argument about about seating arrangements a little bit later, and they have to do with thrones next to Christ. But hold on to this thought for now, like, wow, check that out, that's amazing. But knowing the Lord, is he just, <laughs> is he just answering a covetous question with a, with a covetous answer? Peter's hinting, he's asking, what's in it for us? What was he going to get? Well, what are we going to get? And do you think Jesus is just saying, oh, well, let me tell you. Let me give you a preview of coming rewards, and now you'll rule with me and judge alongside me. Now, yes, that's true, but I wonder if the Lord is hinting at something deeper with the call to judgment. You see, it's not just a throne to sit on and have everyone look at you and honor you. 
This is the judgment seat where you will have to judge other people, including rich young rulers that may or may not have been able to overcome that one last thing. Are you going to be judging them by comparing themselves, comparing them to you all the time? Are you going to deny blessings to anyone that doesn't quite live up to your lofty standard? Because that's a tall order. What I've asked of you apostles. Again, I'm impressed that you've come. I just worry. Will you be able to look upon those who still lack and look on them with love? Or will it be competition and comparison and criticism and complaint? Those four C's we've talked about. And will you condemn? There's another C. Because they don't measure up. You've got, if you're going to be a judge, Peter, you've got to judge more righteously than that. You need to take their situations into consideration. And you've got to judge out of love. Not out of some kind of self-importance. So be careful. The Lord then goes on and says in verse 29 and 30, Everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands... Remember that earlier passage where he's saying something similar and the JST adds, if you've forsaken husband as well. So again, male, female, brother, sister, whatever you're giving up, if you'll do that for my name's sake, that's how the Matthew version has it. Mark's version has it for my sake and the gospels. Luke's version has it for the kingdom of God's sake. It's wonderful sakes there. My name, mine, the Gospels, the kingdoms. Notice they all are not your sake. <laughs> if you're doing it for me instead of for you, if you're asking what's in this for the Lord and his kingdom and others, instead of asking what's in it for me, then what's the promise? What's the rate on your investment? You shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Is that enough for you, Peter? Well, either way, many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So be careful about putting yourself first here, Peter. These are the role reversals that we find so frequently in Scripture. This is Lazarus and the rich man last week. Peter, be a little less focused on keeping your receipts for all that you've given. Be a little slower to... <laughs> Take a, a, an accounting of your sacrifices and then add two zeros at the end so you can multiply them a hundredfold. No, let's, let's not worry about that. Let's leave that in the hands of the Lord. It's because some of it's going to come in this life, but most of it's going to come in the next. In all of the accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all seem to try to balance both the here and the hereafter. We just saw it there in Matthew, receive a hundredfold, that seems to be hinting at this life. Everlasting life is obviously the next one. It's clearer in Luke 18, verse 30, where Jesus says they will receive manifold more in this present time. So that's obviously the now. And in the world to come, life everlasting. So again, present and future, keep those both in mind. But I also love the added phrase, manifold more. He didn't specify the 100, but manifold. It's going to be so obvious, so manifest to you, so manifold, that you won't have to wonder 
if you came out better than where you started. That's going to be obvious to you all. And then Mark adds one other detail, really fascinating. This is Mark 10, verse 30. All those who have sacrificed for the Lord's sake, here's your promise, he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time. So there's, again, that present, that specificity. He gets more specific with what you'll get, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands. But then this interesting two-word phrase, with persecutions, and then back to the good news, and in the world to come eternal life. So again, it's here and hereafter. It's now and later. Now, blessings in this life as well as the life to come. But did you catch? Well, did you catch the catch? With persecutions? That's an interesting phrase. The blessings you get now will come with strings attached. And those strings attach to, to persecution, to opposition. In some ways, you're bringing yourself back into a, the potential of the pride cycle. Because all of those things that I'm blessing you with in the here and now, will you cash out early? Will you think that's enough? Or will, am I only giving you more in this life so you have more to give? And then you continue building momentum on the Lord's side of the pride cycle to avoid the adversary's side altogether. So that the blessings in heaven will continue to multiply. And I'm giving you more on this life just so you continue to have more to give to others. Peter, you, you and the others still have a lot of growing up in God to do. And though for this rich young ruler, it was learning obedience and then stepping into sacrifice. You've learned obedience. You've stepped onward and upward into sacrifice. But can you take the next step? Which is not just consecrating but overcoming the comparisons that come with consecration. This is purifying your motives, just like we saw back in the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, you're perfect? Eh, maybe in behavior, end of chapter 5. Let's make sure we're doing it for the perfect reasons. How about chapter 6? And then stop judging other people that are still back in chapter 5 and chapter 6. How's that for chapter 7? In a similar way, that's what we're about to see here. Matthew 19 ends on that amazing note of Jesus, rich young ruler, not so rich young apostles, the comparison between the two, what, what's in it for me, what will God give me as I follow him? Don't worry about any of that. Jesus is about to turn the page and teach another story that will illustrate the lesson he's hoping that Peter and the other apostles learn. For us, as we prepare to turn that page ourselves, sit with the problem for a moment and see if we're ready to overcome. If we are ready to sacrifice and consecrate our all without worrying for a second about the level of sacrifice of those all around us. Love them and let them grow up in God at their pace and at the Lord's direction. Then we turn the page and come to Matthew chapter 20. 19 ended, like I just said, with the rich young ruler and Peter comparing himself to the rich young ruler's lack of sacrifice with the abundance of Peter's own sacrifice. Well, Peter, you ready for a story? 
I gave you the gentle rebuke by letting you know that you're going to be on judges. That's your reward, but it's also your responsibility. You better judge righteously. You better judge kindly. You better look with love upon those that are less than you. And in case you missed it, let me lower the defenses by telling you a parable and seeing if the story can bring in the moral of the story behind enemy lines. Chapter 20 begins with the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And like I've said before, don't let the chapter break, break the story up. The, the narrative arc is following through, through here beautifully. So don't pass through the veil and end one day and, and, uh, and forget it the next. With that in mind, with 19 in mind, turn to chapter 20 and start in verse 1 and 2. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And of course he's going to go do it early in the morning. This householder's got a day's worth of work to do. He's probably got multiple days. So we got to get an early start on it. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And that's normal. Uh, that's an honest day's wage for an honest day's work. It's going to be fair to both parties. Everybody knows that if you're out in the fields laboring, then a denarius is what you can come to expect. A penny a, penny a day. Now, there's more work to be done than what they can handle. And so it looks like later in the day, the Lord of the Vineyard, who realizes, whoa, there's, it's all hands on deck. And we're going to need more workers than what I hired at, days, at, at sunup. So verse 3, he went out about the third hour. Now this is 9 a.m. He saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. So straight out into the fields to begin working. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. So, man, there's a ton of work to be done. And, and the work crew is growing by the hour. Maybe he thought he had enough uh, starting at 6 a.m. By 9, I'm going to need some more. By 12, we're going to need some more. By 3, we're going to need some more. Man, the, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. So pray that the Lord of the harvest will bring more workers into the harvest. And that's exactly what's happening here. He is hastening his work. He is picking up speed. I remember the very last day before I left uh, Southern California to drive to, to BYU for freshman year of college. I'd been working my tail off to try to save my, up money for my mission. And I worked for a sweet bishop that owned a company that did chain link fences. And they do chain link fence around construction sites and around oh, concerts so that were outside and things. We just did tons of, it was all temporary chain link fence. Put it up, take it down. Uh, that was the job. And it was backbreaking. But uh, I was making money and saving up for my mission and was grateful for the chance. And I remember Lollapalooza was coming to Los Angeles and they rented out like this, this reservoir. And they were going to have the stage set up and all these places for people. But they were worried about, especially if you're at a concert and starting to drink, they were worried about people falling into the reservoir and having problems. So they hired the company to put a temporary chain link fence up around the whole reservoir. It was a mile and a half of chain link fence that was required, which was more than the company owned in total. 
The boss was stoked, like, this is the biggest job we've ever had. We're going to have to buy more chain link fence and expand our operations. Now, there were only four of us that worked on the chain link fence part of the operation. There were some other side jobs that other people had. But uh, there were jobs all around L.A., smaller things, little construction sites and whatever. So he put two guys on those. You do all of them. And then me and one other guy were supposed to put up the mile and a half of chain link fence around this reservoir for Lollapalooza. And what was interesting, the the organizers of the concert only had the permits for like a week. It was going to take most of that week to set everything up. And then there was the, conference, the, the concert and then it was all super fast takedown. Now, the hope was with the other two guys doing all the other jobs around LA, me and my partner could get the other chain link fence job done, uh, the one job, in like the four days that we had to do it. And you want to talk about starting from the first hour and working until the 12th? These were brutally long days. Sun up to sundown, we were out there working on, uh, on, the, on the fence. Now, by the end of the first day, we're like, man, we made some good progress. But we're looking going, this is a huge reservoir. Uh, by the end of day two, we're starting to get a little nervous. Like, we're not yet halfway done, but we're halfway out of time. Third day, we're picking up speed, working as fast as we can, but this is hard back-breaking work, and, and we're not keeping up with it, even with like 12-hour days. And so on the fourth day, which was the last day we could finally work, it's like the, the, we, we saw the, the, sixth, the third hour and the sixth and the ninth, and, and we're running out of time. What are we going to do here? It really did become all hands on deck. By that last day, the boss said to the other two, forget the rest of the projects in L.A. We need you. So come. Bring the other truck. Bring all the stuff. And we were working all day. By later in the evening, the boss came. And even he rolled up his sleeves and started working with us. Uh, he brought some food to just kind of keep things going. The sun's going down. And we're like, we're not done yet. It's got to be finished. So we, he, we would like drive the truck up onto the grass and keep the headlights on. And just slowly inch it forward as we're putting up chain link fence and getting things going. That last day, the very next day was the day I was supposed to drive, back, drive from L.A. to Provo to start BYU. That last day was a 24-hour shift. You should have seen my overtime. It was amazing. It, got, it probably paid for a month or two of my mission just that week. But a 24-hour shift, we were zombies by the end of the day. I mean, all through the night, we were working with the, the headlights on and just kind of your body checked out already. It's like, dude, I was done like 12 hours ago, but you don't seem to care. You're not going to listen to me, so I guess I'll just keep working. And we just did it until the job was done. There's a sense here in this parable of the laborers in the vineyard that there's more to do than anyone imagined. And we need all hands on deck as the Lord hastens his work. In this, the final dispensation of the fullness of times. We got to wrap up all the loose ends that were left from prior dispensations. No wonder the Lord is hastening. No wonder the work is speeding up and he is gathering. He's lowered the missionary age even as he raised the, the missionary bar. He's sending out senior missionaries. Uh, he's, he's calling us to engage in the work. And whatever the hour is, it's never too late to start serving. And that's one of the main points he's ma he makes in this parable. Now, notice what we've seen so far, because we're about to get to the 11th hour where things really get interesting. 
The first group that started at sunup knew exactly what that was expected of them. I want a day's work. And they knew exactly what they'd receive at the end, a day's wage. Totally fair to both parties. And we're agreeing on that from the beginning. Now, later, you have some people that are starting to get increasingly desperate. I wasn't hired at 6 a.m. What's wrong with me? Uh, some were hired at 9 and some at 12 and some at 3. And there's not much of a, not many daylight hours left. I wonder how much the master is going to give me. In fact, but there was no agreement made. Did you catch that? The Lord of the vineyard said, whatsoever is right, I'll pay you. Now, you better hope this is an honest. You have no contract. You better hope this is an honest boss. Or, or is he just trying to milk you for a few hours of work for pennies on the dollar? He's like, hey, be, be grateful I gave you anything. Because at this point, it's the master that has all the advantage on his side. Come, we'll see what I pay you. Now, in verse 6, it's even later now. About the 11th hour, we're now at 5 p.m., it's almost quitting time, he went out and found others standing idle. They're just kind of there at the marketplace, not doing anything. You know, so he quick, it would be easy to judge them and just go, what's, what's your problem? You lack all kinds of things. Why aren't you lazy bum? Why aren't you working? And sure enough, the Lord of the vineyard comes and says to them, why stand ye here all the day idle? What are you doing? But did you notice they, they're still standing? They're still there at the marketplace, the place where you go in hopes of getting hired. They stayed all day. They have not given up hope. They got hungry mouths at home to feed. And I would have been working from the beginning if someone had given me the chance. But nobody's hired me. That's what they say. They say unto him, because no man hath hired us. We kept seeing masters come and masters go and pick up other people that must have seemed like they had greater potential. Are they feeling unworthy? Are they feeling inadequate? They're, they're not stoked they had a day off. No, it's if you don't work, you don't eat. You picture those, you've seen scenes from the Great Depression with people just all swarming the docks and just hoping, begging that some taskmaster will pick their number or point in their direction and you get to work today, which means your family gets to eat tomorrow. The rest just desperately looking for someone that can give them something to do. Well, to them, the Lord of the vineyard says, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So again, no agreement beforehand. Do you trust me? Oh, there's a leap of faith on their part. Then verse 8 and 9. So when even was come, and it came pretty quickly, just one hour later, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers, and give them their hire. It's quitting time, which means it's payday already. In the Law of Moses, it said to the, that to the poor, if they work for the day, don't postpone their paycheck. Give it to them right then, because they're probably living paycheck to paycheck, which might mean day to day. And if you, <laughs> I'll give it to you in two weeks, they're starving for the next fortnight. Okay, you got to be careful. So they're, they're paying off. At the, this is good law of Moses. Okay, he's doing exactly what he should. Now he begins from the last and then goes to the first. So this is going to be one of those occasions of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But there's an interest. This isn't just role reversal here. He's, he's in some ways, oh, increasing the drama of the story. Okay, Jesus is a master storyteller. So the last person hired is the first to get paid. 
And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. Now, wait a minute. They received a penny? That wasn't part of the plan. That wasn't the deal. Oh, wait, there was no deal. Well, I know, but it, the, no good master would have given them this kind of deal. You just multiply their hourly wage by 12. And no menial agricultural labor is going to get 12 pennies for a day's worth of work. There's no way. What on earth are you doing? What they should have earned was a twelfth of a penny. Can you chop it up? Can you slice it that small? Uh, because you gave them a day's wage for an hour's work. Not an hour's wage for an hour's work. This, this master and his steward don't know their math very well. But then again, if he's being that generous to the, to the, the, the hour worker, imagine how generous he's going to be to the day laborer. Verse 10, when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. Which makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you're now paying a penny per hour, then I'll, t I'll have 12, thank you. I've been here since 6 a.m. Sound a little like Peter? I mean, we've been here all day long. We forsook all, left the nets behind. What are you going to give to us? If you were going to give that rich young ruler who had it easy all his life and is coming onto the scene kind of late in the story, right? we're already Matthew 19 here. We're getting close to the last week of the Savior's life. This is the 11th hour. And now you want him to follow? And you're going to give him the treasures of heaven? Hmm, well, multiply those treasures in heaven by the last three years that we've been following you. Peter's eyes have lit up. And in this case, so have these 6 a.m. workers. They thought they would receive more. And yet, how does the story go? They likewise received every man a penny. That's all the master's got is pennies. And he's just passing them out one by one. But when these first long-suffering servants, when they received it, they murmured against the good men of the house. And notice, he's a good man. He's not trying to cheat anyone. Keep that in mind, because these people feel cheated. They murmur against the good man of the house, saying, Wait a minute, these last have wrought but one hour. See, they're last, we were first. They did but one, we did all twelve. This is not fair. Thou hast made them equal unto us. And there's no equality in terms of our effort. We, us, who have borne the burden and heat of the day. So yeah, there's a lot of murmuring going on. There was, this was hard work. This was manual labor under the blistering Israelite sun. And all we got was a penny out of this? You're a cheapskate. You're a lousy boss. Good man? Yeah, whatever. But here's the interesting thing. They got exactly what they signed up for. And they had the advantage. In fact, rewind the clock 12 hours or so. Okay? And you picture them standing around the marketplace along with everyone else. They all probably got there early, maybe 5.30 or so. Uh, and then the master comes, the goodman, the householder, and he sees some people and like, oh, you look like a good worker, come. And then he left the others. Now, at that moment, how do these people feel as they compare themselves to everybody else? Can you sense that they have pride from above? 
And they're looking down at these others going, of course they hired us. We're the hard workers. We're going to get, we're going to give this guy all that, 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 he's, that he's expecting. You guys? Yeah, he, he noticed your lack of potential. Your inability to bear the burdens. No muscle on you. Or the heat of the day. You didn't even bring your sunscreen. So yeah, we're better. We're more worthy of the early call. But it's interesting that over the course of the day, that pride from above now swaps to pride from below because they feel like they've been cheated. And how, you how dare you give them a raise and not us? How dare you give them a higher hourly wage than what you gave us? Having forgotten, by the way, that you knew what you signed up for. It was fair on both parts. These people took the leap of faith. Nothing guaranteed, nothing, no contract, nothing spelled out. They just hoped that I would be good to them. You expected fairness and you got it. They hoped for goodness and they got that. It's so interesting, we typically get what we expect. Now, how's the Lord going to respond to this? This is where it gets interesting. Verse 13, he answered one of them and said, Friend, and I love that he calls him that. Maybe that's why he hired him from the start. We were friends. I knew you. I, I, I chose you because of some, it wasn't what you could do. It was who you knew. And you had the right connections. Okay, So friend, I do thee no wrong. I haven't, I haven't broken our contract. I did nothing against you. He clarifies it. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? That was the contract. You had it in writing. You knew what you could expect. And you got it. So take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. And then he explains himself. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Other translations make this even better. Is thine eye envious because I am generous? I haven't been mean to you. I haven't been evil to you. I've been generous with others. In fact, I was generous with you by hiring you from the very get-go. These others had no hope that they get hired through the day. And the longer the day lasted, the less hope they had. I was trying to be good to them, generous to them. So he concludes, The last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Oh, I called you all at different times of the day. The real question is, who will I choose for tomorrow? I don't know if I'll do tomorrow's hiring the same way I did today's. Because there, I want people to trust me and will just come when called. Not the mere mercenaries that are checking the clock and making sure the, the pay scale is, a, is adequate. The ones that are coming and le leaving what they have, their nets, Peter, and coming to follow me, demanding to know what they're going to get out of it. You see, Peter, you still got some work to do, some <laughs> one thing thou lackest, too. For these, I call everybody. I hope they'll all come. But who I choose depends on how they respond to the call and how they respond to the rewards or lack thereof. Are they putting their trust in the penny appointed? Or are they putting their trust in the good man of the house?
come what may. I'm here to serve. I trust that you'll do whatever is right in your sight. And it's so fascinating. I love, this is an amazing parable. Elder Holland gave an amazing talk in General Conference years ago on the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And, and I love what he said. I love that as we compare it to Peter's experience at the end of 19. But I remember once also comparing it. I came up with what I called the parable of the birthday party. Uh, I shared with you last time the parable of the broken hose that went along with the parable of the rich fool. Well, the parable of the birthday party goes along with the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And instead of a householder going out to hire people, it's a birthday boy or a birthday girl that invites all their friends. Okay, come. We're going to have the best day ever. Uh, it's going to be an all-day celebration. And from sunup to sundown, we've got bouncy houses, and we're going to Chuck E. Cheese, and we're uh, going to an amusement park, and we're having lunch, and we're having dinner, and we're going to, I mean, you name it. I mean, as you're teaching this to your little kids, make the birthday uh, party as incredible as you can imagine, okay? But here's the thing. Some of your friends were able to come from the very start. I mean, they were, their, their parents were dropping them off even before the party started. And, and don't you hate it when it happens, parents? But, uh, but they're thrilled to be there. And so from the very start, what, what's our first activity? Others had some things going on that morning, and they had a soccer game, and they had to come late. But by three hours in, they were ready to, ready to rock, ready to party with you. Others had more chores to do at home and some other things they had to get done and couldn't come until the sixth hour of the party and some came at the ninth hour and those poor poor friends that were stuck doing other things all day and could only show up for the for the for the end they there there was the cake and the presents but they missed out on all the fun and then at the end of the party this wonderful birthday child just throwing hugs giving hugs out left and right so grateful that their friends were able to come no matter how long or short Gave them each a hug and a goodie bag. Remember those from childhood days? And you got your little uh, bag of party favors? That was always epic. Well, imagine the birthday child giving out the same bag of party favors to everyone present. Maybe they gave the ones that got there last. Maybe they gave them theirs first. Like, I'm so glad you came. Thanks so much for celebrating with me. Here. Here. Now, did the ones that were there all day start to light up? Like, you better have 12 party favors, 12 bags worth of party favors for me because I've been here all day. You think that crossed their mind? Probably not. Uh, do you think it was unfair? That last child didn't deserve the party favors. They weren't here the whole time. They didn't bear the burden or the heat of the day. What? The heat of the day? You were at Disneyland, for crying out loud. The burden? the burden of the, the, the pinatas that you were swinging at and hitting and getting all the candy from. I mean, burden. This was a blessing from sunup to sundown. And you loved it. Party time. If anyone should be murmuring or feeling sad about things, it's those that missed out on most of the fun. And just got to come and rejoice with the friend that they loved for that last hour of celebration. In some ways, the party favors are beside the point. It's the party. Now, I imagine toiling all day out in the hot sun didn't feel like a party to the day laborers. 
But what do we say about the work of God? What do we sing about the work of God? Sweet is the work. And the kinds of blessings that come as we labor in the Lord's vineyard, oh, it beats Chuck E. Cheese any day. <laughs> and the, oh, just being back up in Idaho at that mission, uh, those mission conferences, it reminded me of how much I absolutely loved my mission, despite how hard it was as far as our, our, our work. We bore the burden and the heat of the day. And that was a blistering Caribbean sun. But you know what? If you bear the burdens, you do end up with the biggest muscles. And if you bear the heat of the day, you do come home with the best tan. Well, farmer tan, at least arms down with short sleeve white shirts, right? <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is sweet is the work. And if you take Jacob 5 at its, at its face value, what does he say about the final, the final round of work in the vineyard? Unlike previous episodes, the Lord of the vineyard comes down and labors right alongside them. That's what the 11th hour, I told you all hands on deck. The boss came and put up chain link fence with us. And when the boss is none other than the Savior himself, when the good man of the house is the greatest man that's ever lived, then the thought of being able to serve with him Sign me up for all 12 hours and keep your penny. I don't even need it. Can I come back tomorrow and keep going? You're going to be here, right? <laughs> I love the muscles and the tan that I'm getting, but more than anything, I love the companionship of the Lord of the vineyard. Will you please let me come and serve? I don't need to agree on some kind of wage by the day or by the hour. I just... The work... Is reward enough? You don't have to bless me with anything above and beyond just the chance to serve thee. In some ways, we're back to the unprofitable servants of King Benjamin. Please don't pay me because I'm already in debt. Take whatever you were going to pay me and pay off the debt. And the Lord's like, ha, that's not how it works. I immediately bless you because I love you. And... <laughs> The reward was never meant to be a reward. It was never meant to be a debt. It was meant to be a gift. That's why this is a party. And the party favor is exaltation. The party favor, the penny appointed, that's treasure in heaven. No wonder I can't split it up into 12 little pieces of the pie. In some ways it is all or nothing. I've saved you. I've brought you home. And whether you joined the church, when you, when you, whether you got baptized when you were eight years old and served in heavy callings your entire life, or whether you got baptized in your 90s, and your service was simply smiling to others that sat near you in the chapel. Welcome home, thou good and faithful servant. Here's your penny appointed. I'm sorry you feel like you missed out on so much of the fun. The life of discipleship and service and growth and muscles and tan and coming to know the Lord of the vineyard that went before it. I am not jealous of those that join the church later in life. Those that join with pure hearts and real intent are jealous of us that spent a lifetime
at the best birthday party you could ever imagine. I hope that changes our perspective somewhat on this parable. I hope we are grateful for any chance the Lord gives us to show our love to Him, whatever quote-unquote sacrifices we offer that He more than makes up for. I wonder if that was what W.W. Phelps had in mind when he wrote The Spirit of God. As all these people had given everything, worked so hard to be able to build the Kirtland Temple, and yet what's the first word out of their mouth in the dedicatory prayer? Thanks. Thanks for hiring us. Thanks for letting us work all day long. Keep your penny. We built the house of God. And the fact you let us in to your house is what an incredible gift. What a blessing. We don't sing this one anymore because this verse has dropped out of the four verses of that hymn that we still have in our hymn book. But in the original version that Phelps wrote for the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, that thanks moment, one of the verses says this, We'll wash and be washed, and with oil be anointed, with all not omitting the washing of feet. And those were ordinances that they did in the Kirtland Temple, this, these washings and anointings. And then this line for the rhymes, For he that receiveth his penny appointed must surely be clean at the harvest of wheat. I love Oil anointed, oh, what about the penny appointed? The washing of feet, yeah, that was to prepare you for the harvest of wheat. In some ways, like I said, the penny is beside the point. It's that anointing oil that we seem to get all over us as we labor <laughs> beneath the burdens and the heat of the day. That's the cleansing that comes as we serve alongside the Lord of the vineyard. And it's... It's a wage that none of us deserve, far beyond anything we could possibly expect. Overtime hours? Yeah. <laughs> Sign me up, as many as I can get. Now, there ends this scene. And then the camera shifts to another one. This one, in some ways, if we, if we stay on the same mental track, it should further put the apostles in their place as far as comparison is concerned. You, you, you guys are comparing yourself to the rich young ruler? Okay, fine. Yeah, you come out looking good. How about compare yourself to me and how do you feel now? Compare yourself to you, compare your small sacrifices to the sacrifice I am about to make. And you will no longer feel superior, superior to anyone else. It's that thing we learned in conference years, years ago about the... Missionary thought he was so much better than his companion until the Spirit whispered, you know, compared to me, you two aren't very different at all. <laughs> compared to the Lord, Peter and the rich young ruler both had many things lacking. Jesus himself, well, notice what he says next. Verse 17, Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples apart in the way. Now Mark adds that Jesus went before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Now, why the amazement? Why the fear? Are the apostles afraid of what lies ahead? Do they know the danger they're going to face in Jerusalem? Well, however much they knew or didn't know, Jesus is about to confirm their fears. But interestingly, he does it in a way 
that he hopes to alleviate them. This is actually a, an effort to alleviate your fears. This is what's supposed to happen. So don't be amazed when it comes. Don't be afraid. We're, we're doing this. He said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. They shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, that's the Romans, to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. That's where we're going now. Your sacrifice is nothing compared to mine. So quit comparing yourselves to others. I'm not even comparing myself to you. I'm just trying to help you see what, what we're in for here. No wonder we saw earlier in Luke that he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. No wonder we saw in John chapter 11 last week. Don't go to Jerusalem, Thomas says. You're in for it. You're going to get killed. And yet if you go, we'll go with you to be killed right alongside you. In the John account, there's some inkling of this. They understand what Jesus is up against, and they're willing to follow him there. Here in Matthew and Luke, actually Matthew and Mark, there's this concern of what are we in for? We're amazed, we're afraid, and Jesus is trying to reassure them in a fascinating way. I know what we're in for. It's okay. Don't be amazed at what lies ahead, and certainly don't fear it. That's what I came to earth to accomplish. That mission is mine, and nothing will keep me from it. In the Luke version of this, by the way, chapter 18, verse 31, the Lord says the same thing, but adds, all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. So once again, making it painfully clear what lies ahead for him. But do the apostles get it? I mean, they kind of know, but they don't really know. In fact, in Luke 18.34, they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. They did not get it. Complete lack of understanding. Probably thought he was speaking in parables again. But like we've seen a couple of times already, probably too ashamed to ask. He's like, do you understand? They're like, uh, yeah, I get it. You're going to be betrayed and crucified. There's got to be some kind of symbolism there. Uh, and then rise the third day, whatever that means. They do not understand. We've got to cut them some slack when we get to that final week. They're kind of flying blind here, even though Jesus has been really clear. They just don't see that clarity. Now, it's obvious that they're, they don't see it in what happens next. Because if they understood what, they, what the Savior had said about, quit comparing yourselves, what he'd said to, with the parable of the, of the labors in the vineyard, what he just said about his level of self-sacrifice and what he was about to accomplish. I mean, this is a somber moment. At least it should have been. This should have been a moment of serious self-reflection and I, I'm doing nothing compared to what he's about to do. And why am I comparing myself to others? And why am I asking what's in this for me when Jesus didn't ask that? He's doing all of this for us. So I've got to get over myself. Well, that's what they should have been thinking. But instead, go back to Matthew 20 and look at verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children. Now, who are the sons of Zebedee? James and John. So who are the mother, who's the mother of Zebedee's children? Well, James and John's mom, 
We don't know much about her, but she comes with her sons, worshiping Jesus. Now, so far, so good. If we stop there, it's like, hey, James John, love your mom. She's amazing. But it doesn't stop there. She came worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him, which makes you second guess her worship. Is that why, or at least our own, is that why we worship? Because we're trying to butter up God in hopes that he'll give us something because of all the stuff that we're doing for him. That's kind of what Peter was hinting at. Look what we first look, look what we've been doing. What's in it for us? Is she doing similar things? Worse yet, do we do similar things? Are we trying to get something out of our, get get something out of God because of our relationship to him? Hey, I I scratched your back. When are you going to scratch mine? Well, in this case, he says to her, what wilt thou? So what, what do you desire? And she saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. Whoa. Yeah. Now, on the one hand, maybe we can cut James and John's mom some slack. Uh, Sister Zebedee. <laughs> what? Have you not? You haven't been around. You haven't heard what I've been trying to teach. Did you miss the parable of the laborers in the, in the vineyard? Uh, we're not here to compare or compete. It's not about who gets to sit on my right and on my left. See, this is what I was hinting at when I talked about the, the, tr- the 12 thrones around Christ's throne. And you guys will all get to sit on them judging Israel. But again, that's not for you to look down on people. It's for you to figure out, you better judge righteous judgment the way I do. Mm, and what did they hear in that? Ooh, thrones. Nice. Wait, but what, all 12 of us get him? I mean, come on, James and John, weren't they among the first? I mean, Simon is among the, I mean, he's the chief apostle, right? The, the rock upon the, which Jesus will build the church. Or Peter, James, and John, they're the big three, right? They're the ones on, Transfigur- on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're the three that got to go in with Jairus uh, in the rising of, his, raising of his daughter. So surely, I mean, we're the sons of thunder for crying out loud, right? So we want thunder right next to the rock, and all three of us right next to, to the Lord. We deserve this, surely. Now, is this just mom not being aware of all that? And mom just loving her sons and wanting the best for them? Now, in the Mark account, it's even worse. Because it's not mom asking for it. It's James and John asking directly. They say, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Now, if that doesn't smack of a sense of entitlement, I don't know what what does. We saw Peter's failing as he compares himself to the rich young ruler. Now we're seeing James and John in their failing, kind of making demands of Jesus saying, hey, we want you to give us what we want. Oh, 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 really? What's what's your penny appointed? Is that what you got out of that parable? Like, ooh, we we need to get things in writing in advance. Okay, Uh, don't trust... Yeah, that's, that's it. We need to have things spelled out that this is what I'm going to get in the next life. And we want pole position. We want right hand and left. Now, who's, who are we most disappointed in now? Is it mom or is it James and John? Was it just mom's idea and James and John are embarrassed like, Mom, come on, you're embarrassing us in front of our friends. Or is this James and John not wanting to embarrass themselves and therefore almost hiding behind mom like, Hey, mom. Go ask Jesus. He'll listen to you in ways he might not listen to us. This will be, oh, a kind gift he can give to you that happens to bless us. I don't know. But I am grateful for the humanity of these men. 
I am grateful to realize that Jesus is still working on them and they're not done yet either. More than one thing we all lack. But notice the Lord's gentle response. In verse 22, Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. That's a powerful phrase. Salvation, my friends, comes with strings attached. It's the with persecutions that all these earthly blessings come, come with. And in this case, what you're asking for, celestial glory, oh, it only comes on the heels of unimaginable earthly trials. You have no idea what you're really asking for here. In light of what I just said about having to be mocked and scourged and crucified, do you really want to follow me? Are you going to follow me into Gethsemane? How far? Are you going to follow me into Calvary? How high on the cross? Do you have any idea that glory only comes after much tribulation and you have no idea the amount of tribulation that lies in store? Jesus says, Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And those are haunting phrases. Can you drink the cup that I drink from? Now we should be familiar with that one, right? Three times in Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. It's too bitter. DNC 19, I didn't shrink from the bitter cup. I drank the whole thing. We, we understand the bitter cup. The, James and John don't. And so when Jesus says, you really want to follow me? After what I just explained about what lies in store, you have no idea what you're asking for. Are you ready to drink that cup? And then the other one, even more cryptic, are you ready for the baptism? Well, wait a minute, you, are, you already were baptized. Jordan River, John the Baptist. It's like, that's not the baptism I'm talking about. Oh, you mean baptism by fire then? We had baptism by water, now it's baptism by fire? Oh, you're getting closer. Because it will be fiery. But not the fire of the Holy Ghost that purifies. This will be a fire of pain that will scorch me to the soul. This will be a baptism in blood. As I bleed from every pore. This will be an immersion in agony unlike anything that any human has any ever experienced. We're going to come back to this shortly, a couple weeks anyway. But there's a verse in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus talks about that baptism. So here, as we see it in Matthew, this is probably not the first time Jesus has mentioned it. But in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus, speaking of the fire that's already kindled, that's going to scorch people left and right. It's going to consume him. After that, on the heels of that fire language, he then says this in Luke 12, verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And that's the same baptism that he's hinting at to the apostles here. It's the ba baptism in blood. It's the baptism in pain. And then Jesus says this about it. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Now, those are some of the most poignant words you'll ever hear from Jesus. I have a baptism to be baptized with. I know where I'm headed. 
and there's no turning back. But I wish there were. This is the preview of the same concern, the same worry, the same fear. I think we can call it all of that, even when it applies to Jesus. The same dread that he was feeling about the bitter cup, let it pass, let it pass. He feels the same thing about this baptism. Oh, how I am straightened till it be accomplished. This is not G-H-T. This is not Jesus crooked and I need to be straightened out. No, this is straight A-I-T, like the straight, the bearing straight. A straight on the map is a little tiny pinch of ocean being smashed between two protruding land masses. That's what a straight is. And here Jesus is being straightened, being crushed between the demands of his divinity and the concerns of his humanity. How am I straight until it be accomplished? James and John, how cavalierly and cluelessly you are signing up for the bitter cup and the bloody baptism. It's so much bigger than that. Elder Holland once gave a talk when he was president of BYU called the bitter cup and the bloody baptism. Based on the language that Jesus uses here. It's a masterpiece, as you'd expect from Elder Holland. But to understand what James and John could not understand, the naivete on their part, sign us out. We want eternal glory. What does it take to get there? That's us in pre-mortality, by the way. Oh, the plan is to go down to earth and like have trials, whatever those are, to have bodily pain. Oh, I've never had a body. How bad can it be? Oh, it's one thing to accept the plan in theory. It's another thing to deal with it in fact. And we're here dealing with it in fact. James and John, are you able to do that? Can you drink of my cup and be baptized with my baptism? And unironically... Very cluelessly, James and John, verse 22, they say unto him, yeah, sure, why not? Sign us up. They say, we are able. It's so funny because, I mean, yeah, you sort of know what you signed up for. But in reality, you have no idea. We sort of knew what we were signing up for when we turned in our mission papers and accepted our mission call. Then we got to the field and it's like, whoa, I thought I was able. This is way harder than I thought. Uh, we thought we knew what marriage was going to be like when we got married. We signed up for this. This is great. Of course I can drink that cup. It's like sparkling cider. This is the best stuff ever. Oh, and then some hard times come. We, like I said, we thought mortality was going to be a stroll in the park. Well, it was a trudge out of the garden. And it's hard. And so when we cluelessly just say, we are able. I worry that there we were in the naivete of the creation stage with no clue how deep the fall could be. We still need to navigate it. We still need to descend and move downward in order to move forward. There's the elevation of atonement still lying ahead. But maybe we should be a little more careful before we just <laughs> bounce up to Jesus saying, we are able, give us the whole thing.
Well, Jesus responds to them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. So I'm grateful you think you're able. Time will tell. You'll get a sense of just how bitter this cup is and how deep the baptismal waters are. But I'm glad you're signing up for it. But as to your original question, to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. That is an interesting statement, too. He brings it full circle. Well, back to what you were asking for. Yeah, I, I taught you some interesting things along the way. I tested your naivete. You, you failed that, that test. But you, you, you signed up for it, and I'm grateful. Um, you kind of need a little bit of sense of invincibility to head off on a mission or to get married or to have kids or to come to earth. Just realize once you get here, it will, be painfully, it will become painfully clear that you're not as invincible as you thought. But since you originally were asking about where you get to sit and the best seats in the house, yeah, I don't do the seating arrangements. I'm not even worried about my own throne. I promise them to you because God promised it to me, but it's going to be him that keeps the promise. And I'm fine with that. I trust him. And I love that the Lord just leaves it in his hands. Why call me good? There's only one good, and it's the Father. If he's the one asking me to drink the cup, I'll, I'll, I'll drink it. If he's the one immersing me in agony, then I'll go all the way in. And reward? I don't care about my penny appointed. I'm here to serve, come what may. And I'll let the chips fall where they may. Because I trust the good man of the house. He's my father. It's so beautiful what the Lord is trying to convey here. What he's trying to help them see. <laughs> what are they seeing? Well, what are they seeing in each other, in themselves? Verse 24 is interesting aftermath. When the ten heard it, so any apostle not named James or John, <laughs> they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. They're ticked off. Mark says they were much displeased. And I wonder... Is this indignation? Because they're like, how dare you ask him for that? Think you're better than us? Where are we going to sit? Who are you going to put on the end in the seating arrangements? There's probably some of that indignation. But I also wonder if there was some underlying indignation of, you asked what I wanted to. Mm. And I'm indignant at myself for thinking about what I'm going to get out of this. Instead of trying to support Jesus in what he would have to go through in all of this, oh, I'd be a little indignant at myself as well. But then Jesus, verse 25, called them unto him. And that's the best cure for pride and contention I know of. Just come unto Christ. Those things will just kind of oh, evaporate in the presence of his perfection. They come, and he says to them, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. That's just the way things work, right? You saw a rich young ruler. What did he do? He ruled. That's how it works. People exercise dominion. Sadly, it's usually unrighteous dominion, but that's kind of how things go. Okay, But that's the Gentile model of leadership. I'm in charge. I rule over you. 
You are nothing. You bow beneath me. You serve me. That's how things work. And Jesus is here to turn all of that on its head. He's here for the role reversals. He's here to make the first last and the last first. So forget the Gentile model. He says, it shall not be so among you. So we're not going to take our leadership cues from the world. We're not going to play the world's game or follow the world's definition of success. No, we're, we're doing something different here. And this is, here's the difference. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Mark's version says, let him be the servant of all. Everybody's servant. You want to be the top? Then be the absolute last. Sit in the lowest possible seat and the Lord will move you forward. He then adds, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Sell myself. I mean, you want to meet a real rich, young ruler? Look at me. The riches of eternity are mine to give. And I am the king of kings, the ruler of all rulers. And yet I will sell all that I have. In fact, I'll sell all that I am. So I can give to the poor. That's all of you. So I can give my life a ransom for many. Anyone who will come. Because the reason I came was to be a servant of all. To descend below all things so from that lowly vantage point I could lift you all back up to God. That's the purpose of Christ's condescension. Will you condescend with me? Will you minister unto others and be the lowest of the low? That's what, I'm, that's what he's getting at here. That's the Lord's leadership model. It's a far cry from the Gentiles, but it's the one that works best. Any of you or, or me, any time that we're in a position of leadership, recognize that it's a position of servitude. That's what we've been called to do, to be like Jesus, to minister unto others. And then Jesus will show another great example of this. If the light is starting to dawn on, if the light bulb is starting to turn on for the apostles, if they're starting to get all that we've talked about so far today, and overcoming comparison and competition, giving all and sacrificing without hope of re- or care for reward, willing to lower ourselves to the level of others, are you starting to see why I came? Are you starting to see what I'm about to do starting next week with the triumphal entry? Are, are, are your eyes beginning to open? If not, let me make it obvious that that's what I'm attempting to do. Let's go meet a, a blind man, shall we? In verse 29 and 30, here's the next story. As they departed from Jericho, they're now starting to make the climb up to Jerusalem, a great multitude followed him, same as always. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, Ooh, the wayside? Yeah, sounds like the parable of the sower. These are the exact types of people that always get trodden down or picked on. There's no chance to grow for them. They're, They're blind. Now, when they heard that Jesus passed by, they cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. Now, son of David is actually a preview of what they'll be shouting next week at the triumphal entry. Uh, This is a preview of coming attractions. And who sees him as the son of David, the Messiah, the king of Israel? Two blind men. They've got better eyes than, than most of the sighted. 
they recognize him for who he really is. Now, I keep saying they, Mark and Luke would say he. Mark and Luke say there's only one blind man here. Which makes me wonder, how did Matthew give us a second? Now, he may just be multiplying things to make it even a bigger deal than it was originally. Uh, maybe there was another person. Uh, maybe we are the other person, symbolically speaking. That there was one literal blind man and then the rest of us join him. And will we have his eyes to see? Or are we blind to who Jesus is too? Any of the 12 apostles could stand in for blind man number two. Because they still don't get it. They don't understand any of this, what's going on. And their actions seem to confirm that fact. What, we, what you do see, though, one detail, by the way. This is in Mark, and only in Mark. Chapter 10, verse 46, we get the name of this particular blind man. He's called Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, who sat by the highway side begging. So just a blind beggar, relying upon the mercy of others. Well, here comes mercy personified. Uh, the multitudes are making a lot of noise. This blind man asks, what's, what's going on? I can't see anything. What, what's happening? And they say, oh, Jesus is coming. And he perks up and knows this is his only chance. So he starts crying out after Jesus to come, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. I need help. And so do all my blind companions, every last one of them, who don't know who you really are, don't have the eyes to see. Oh, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. That's actually redundant because Bar in Hebrew is son, like Simon Bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. So Bartimaeus, Bar Timaeus, his name is Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. That's what I said. Yeah, Bartimaeus. Who's your dad? Well, Timaeus. That's what my name means. Are you, really? <laughs> okay, so Bartimaeus, the, who is Bar Timaeus? Gotcha. Some scholars have even wondered is this, again, even the name is the name symbolic. Because Timaeus is the name of a philosophical treatise by Plato. And Plato was famous in the ancient world. He just came, what, three centuries or so before this. Is Mark saying something about philosophy? Oh, you sons of Plato out there, you sons of Timaeus, you're blind if you don't... So, so much blindness throughout the, the Gospels. Jews who were blind to who the real Messiah would be and who the real enemy was. Not here to free you from Rome, here to free you from sin. Oh, hard sayings, who can hear them? The, the blind apostles not recognizing what Jesus had come to accomplish. Are we all blind Bartimaeuses because we get sucked into the philosophies of men? Even philosophers far, far inferior to Plato. They would claim them as our Oh, intellectual fathers. When will we finally see? I actually remember one other detail here that I found fascinating. When I was in college, I took a New Testament course from an incredibly, I mean, it was uh, Stephen Robinson, uh, famous for believing Christ. Amazing, amazing parable of the bicycle. Remember that one. But he was my New Testament professor, and he is incredible uh, scholar of the New Testament. And... He was teaching us the difference between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as gospel writers. And I remember one thing he said was that sometimes Mark will include some irrelevant detail. It doesn't, it's not required for the story. He just kind of throws something in. And I was like, irrelevant detail? What, what, what do you mean? And he used this as an example. 
It's like, this is a blind beggar. Does it really matter that his name is Bartimaeus and that his father's name was Timaeus? Or maybe he just meant that the, the son of Timaeus was irrelevant because it's already in, assumed in his name. <laughs> okay? I don't know exactly what Dr. Robinson meant there. Okay? His, he, his, he was way smarter than me. Still is. But what was interesting is the thought at the time. There was something inside me that said, wait a minute. Okay, I guess from a narratological standpoint, that might be irrelevant information. We have so many unnamed characters in the New Testament, many of whom were beggars or blind or lepers or people struggling, and you don't need to know their name. It represents every man. All of us are in that condition without the Savior's help. But even then, as a freshman in college, it struck me, I doubt that that was an irrelevant detail to Bartimaeus. And the fact that his name would be remembered and that his father's name would be remembered too, I wouldn't call that irrelevant at all. To Jesus, he knows every one of us. He knows who we are. He knows who, he knows who our parents are. He knows where we're from and what we need. We may be blind to him, but he is not blind to us. He sees. He knows. And it's all relevant. How many homeless people can you name by name? How many blind beggars can you give their genealogy? Jesus can do it all. Now, this man, and all of us as we join him as blind man number two, we're crying out for help. Because we can't see, but we know Jesus is coming. And the only hope that we have to ever see anything is going to see him first. So we're shouting. We're, we're crying out to him. And in verse 31, the multitude rebuked them. Or him, or us, or whoever's there. <laughs> okay. But there's a rebuke. Because they should hold their peace. It's like, be quiet. You're, you're disturbing the peace. Well, what are the blind people going to do in, res in response? What's Bartimaeus going to do? What would you and I do? They cried the more saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. It's starting to make Bartimaeus sound like the male version of the Canaanite woman. Remember her? Feeling ignored, feeling rejected. Get out of here. Quit, quit crying after him. Go find a crumb that falls from the master's table. This poor blind man, how am I going to find a crumb? I can't see a thing. So we just keep crying. We cry the more. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stood still and called them. In the Mark version, they call the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And I love that. So Jesus is telling other people, go, 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 get him, go get him, bring him here. I want you to participate in this miracle. You can help him. You can be like the friends of the man that was lowered through the roof a few years ago. Bring him my way. And they go, and I love that they're consoling him and comforting him the whole time. Be of good comfort, rise. Jesus wants to see I know you want to see him too. Now, Jesus asked this blind man, or blind men, we don't know, what will ye that I shall do unto you? Which to me, no offense, has got to be the dumbest question he's ever asked. Well, on the level of maybe the Garden of Eden, when he asks Adam and Eve, where art thou? <laughs> because he totally knows. Once again here, he totally knows. I mean, even, even we know that, right? If a blind man got one wish, what would it be? Well, duh, 
receive my sight. And so in some ways, it's like, Jesus, what are you asking that question for? What will you that I should do unto you? Everyone knows. But that's the irony. I think sometimes the Lord does expect us to vocalize what we need. To admit our brokenness. To have the humility to actually let him know where we're struggling and where our needs are. He knows what those are already. But for us to admit them, for him to play stupid, quote unquote, and say, what is it that you need? It's like, really, do I have to say it? Do I have Isn't it as plain as the closed eyes on my face? Are you as blind as I am? Oh, no. But are you as humble as I am or as you need to be? Tell me what's wrong, Bartimaeus. And you picture this humble man or humbled man admitting where he needs the Lord's help. Admitting that there's no one else to go. Admitting that he can't solve this on his own. This is the moment when the addict finally falls to his knees and admits, my life is out of control and I, I have no hope but in a higher source of power. This is a blind man falling on his knees and admitting, my eyes will not open. Wilt thou open them for me? That's what, they, that's what he says. That's what they say. That's what we must say in verse 33 and 34. They say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. That's what we lack. That's the one thing we lack. And, and I need thy help. I can't overcome it on my own. So Jesus had compassion on them. And that's the word that always follows him through every miracle. He touched their eyes. In the Mark account, Jesus says, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And either way, the man is healed. Immediately their eyes received sight, Matthew tells us. And they followed him, which I love. Because in the Mark account, it was go thy way. In the Matthew account, he went the Lord's way. I guess I would too if he's the one that gave me sight. He's the one that can help me see. Why would I go my way? My way is the blind leading the blind, me leading me. Going his way is following the light of the world and seeing everything clearly. I love Bartimaeus. I love that we know his name. Luke chapter 18, verse 43, then adds this final detail. They followed him. So not just the, the blind man, but all of us. They followed him glorifying God and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. Our true sight will always lead us to do exactly that. Follow, glorify, give praise. Such a beautiful story. Now, right on the heels of this experience, we're, we're done with Matthew for today. But like I said, that that's Luke 18 is where we see the story of healing the blind man. It's Luke 18 that we see a lot of the stories that we've studied from Matthew today. But there's also a few things in Luke 18 that Matthew and Mark never mention. So we're going to end today in Luke 18 and see what else he taught that we haven't already covered. For this, we're going to have to go back to the beginning of the chapter because Luke 18 starts with an amazing parable. In some ways, even though this is before the healing of the blind man in the Luke account, it's a beautiful aftermath of the way we've been studying it together today. 
Because if in the blind man's case, he had to ask the Lord for something, even though the Lord already knew what he needed, we see the same thing in this initial parable, which is called the parable of the importunate widow. Not unfortunate widow, though that is true too. That's kind of redundant, in fact. But importunate in terms of a widow who importunes, who pleads, who asks, who begs for something. Sound like what the blind, blind man was going to do? Sound like what we all should be doing to receive the blessings of God, even though he knows in advance what we need? Well, with that in mind, go to Luke 18, verse 1. He spake a parable unto them to this end. So he's going to give us the purpose of the parable from the get-go. That men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, like I said, that's interesting. He tells us in advance the purpose here. Usually he'll tell you the story and then the moral of the story. And sometimes he won't even tell you the moral of the story. You're just left to figure it out on your own. Let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. But this case, not only am I going to tell you the parable, let me, let me give you the, the punchline first. What's the lesson I intend here? Pray always and do not faint. The Lord will say that exact phrase in other books of Scripture. Okay, We're in this with him. So persevere, persist, be patient, pray. By the way, the Greek word here for faint, that we must pray and not faint, it also means to lose heart, to be weary or weak, to give up, to get discouraged. It's actually the same word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, that says, let us not be weary in well-doing. So interesting, don't faint in the middle of a good thing. Don't give up, don't throw in the towel early, especially not in your prayers. Because again, it's not a matter of alerting the Lord to what you need. He already knows that. It's a matter of you showing him how humble, how submissive, how desperately you need what you're asking for. Well, this widow was desperate. Widows typically were. So notice verse 2, 3, 4, 5. Here is the parable. There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. Now, this sounds like a horrible judge. We've got we to fire this guy. He, he breaks both of the two great commandments simultaneously. Doesn't care about the law. There's the vertical. Doesn't care about the people. There's the horizontal. Sounds like he only cares about himself. I mean, he's the judge. He's in charge. He's, he's good to go, right? Now, if he's the lofty, now let's meet the lowly. There was a widow in that city. And if she's a widow, then yes, by definition, she has no one to watch out for her. Who would she go to if she needed help? Well, none other than the judge, right? Right. She came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And if it's an adversary who's done something to her that now needs vengeance, and she can't, she can't do it herself, then justice is on her side, which means the judge should be on her side. She just needs the judge to intervene and ensure that justice is done. Just do your job, judge. Now, he would not for a while. So he postponed. It sounds like what the legal system always does, right? Well, I've got to come back and we'll appeal and well, we'll get some paperwork to fill out. And, and uh, I've, got a, I've got a lot on my docket. Okay, sorry. He just doesn't get around to it. But eventually he does. Okay. He would not for a while. But afterward, and notice what he's about to say. It's not like, okay, it's her turn. Oh, it finally came up on the list. No, notice what he says. Afterward, he said within himself, 
Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. This guy's pathetic. I mean, honestly, the Greek behind continual is literally not to end. So he's afraid, like, she's never going to stop coming back. This is the most persistent widow I've ever met. Well, go figure. Everything is relying on you actually doing what you are supposed to do for her. What else? Is she, how else is she going to spend her time? No, she's going to come uh, to court every single day until you finally relent and live up to your position. There's the continual coming. And then the weary me, this one's even funnier. The Greek word for weary, as used here, means literally to smite under the eye. It's, she's going to give me a black eye if, if I don't. I mean, this is a serious widow, okay? Uh, and she's going to give me a black eye if I don't just finally give in and go, fine, fine, get off my case, will you? And I'll turn to your case, finally. Now, was this literal, like a black eye, like she's getting impatient? Or is it, I'm going to get a black eye as far as my reputation is concerned, because I'm going to be known as an unjust judge. Well, yeah, that's another na name for this parable, the parable of the unjust judge. <laughs> You're lucky when we call it the parable of the importunate widow. We're kind of letting you off the hook as far as the title is concerned. But you're not letting yourself off the hook until now when you finally like, okay, I guess I should probably do something. But it's not for her sake. That's the tragedy of this story. It's not for her. It's for himself. Just, if I do it, will you leave me alone? This is kind of how, I think little children know the parable of the importunate widow, even if they've never heard of it. Because they tend to importune their parents until their parents finally give in. Even if it's just so that you don't have to keep, quit bugging, fine, fine. You can have Skittles for breakfast today. You can, you can sleep in or you can stay up late or just let me sleep in peace. Well, that's not good parenting. It's certainly not good judgment. But it's key to remember here that the woman is in the right, the judge is in the wrong, and he's only being good, quote-unquote, at the end because it's self-serving. Now, some of you may be wondering, okay, wait, is this going to be another one of those let's find a redeeming feature from a villain like we did last week? Is this like the unjust steward parable? And so like, hey, we should do the... Are we supposed to learn something good from the judge? No. In this case, he's negative all the way through. But he's being used as a negative character to compare to his literary foil. Who's the good character? And I don't mean the widow. She's good too. But who do we turn to in our times of need when no one else is there for us? Who did Bartimaeus turn to? Who did he ask his... Who, who did he offer his prayer to? Oh, so the... The alternative here is God, turning to God. Now, what kind of a judge is he? Is he an unjust judge? Is he the type that never comes through for us, and when he does, it's only to get us off his back? Absolutely not. We've seen Jesus say several times, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to those that ask him, then how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to those that ask him? 
He's way better than us. And if even we would be a better, even if, if I can see this judge, I'm like, I would never be a judge like that. Then, of course, God is never going to be a judge like that. He is so much better than this. Now, that's what he's getting at. But the irony is, don't we sometimes accuse God of being an unjust judge? Don't we sometimes worry that he's asleep on the bench and is unaware or uncaring? This is exactly what we talked about with the Canaanite woman. And does God ignore me? And does he forsake me? And does he deny me? And does he, am I not worthy of his blessings? Are they meant for somebody else? All that we talked about from that story in Matthew 15. But here in Luke 18 with this amazing parable, what are we supposed to learn about God? Because sadly, there are sometimes he does seem to ignore us. Sometimes it seems like he makes us beg and plead and pray and importune without ceasing, with no end. Is God just getting tired of us? Joseph Smith even said once about, I think he had this parable in mind, he was talking about prayer and he said, he said, weary God until he blesses you. <laughs> that, that's amazing. Weary him until he blesses me? Now, I hope that's what, not what he had in mind with, with 116 pages. And, and no, it's knowing the Lord's will. But it's trusting that the Lord will come through, but proving to him that we have that faith. And that patience, and that perseverance, and that long-suffering, and that determination. All those Christ-like attributes were meant to develop in the meantime between a prayer being offered and a prayer being answered. That it's the meantime that the Lord is getting at here. Okay, What do you do in the meantime if God doesn't immediately come through for you? What does the widow do when the judge doesn't come through at the start? She doesn't give up. She doesn't weary and I worry sometimes that we are weary in well-doing. That we get tired of asking God long before he gets tired of us asking. And so we give up. And the Lord might have been just about to bless us. We stopped rowing just before the fourth watch when Jesus came. Because notice verse 6 and 7. The Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. It's like, did you catch what he said? I'm, I'm going to come through, even if it's just for my own sake. Now let's compare that negative judge to the positive one. And that's the shift that Jesus then makes. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Or as the JST says, though he bear long with men? That's kind of how God is. He's patient. I mean, he's eternal. I guess he can afford to be patient. We're the ones that get antsy. We're the ones that get impatient. But the Lord is bearing with us. He's aware of our calls and our cries. He knows what we're going through. He will avenge his elect. We can't avenge ourselves. Again, at this time, the, the Christians are this tiny beleaguered minority. They can't defend themselves. It's going to have to be a judge that comes in and rescues them. And here he's promising he will. God will avenge. I know you are crying unto me day and night, your good, importunate widows. Well, I'm a good judge. Which might leave you wondering, then why haven't you come to our rescue yet? 
Why is it taking so long when you're nothing like that judge? Well, you seem to be like him in terms of the postponed answer, but I know you're not like him in terms of the reasons why. And if that's the case, then what are your reasons? Now we've come to the crux of it all. Look at verse 8. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Now again, the widow's thinking, uh, speedy? Uh, I don't know. Maybe in the eternal scheme of things it's speedy, but it sure feels like it's taking forever from here. There's actually a JST that clarifies the speed of it all. The JST says, I tell you that he will come, and when he does come, he will avenge his saints speedily. Like, ah, okay, so once he's here, then, then yes, speedy, speedy vengeance. It's just not so speedy that in terms of his coming. Yikes. <laughs> once he's here, I don't have to wait on him, but I have to wait on him until he comes. And here we are still waiting on him. Are we still praying? Are we still exercising faith? Are we still persisting in our prayers? Are we still dedicated and determined in our discipleship? That's what the Lord is wondering. Because then notice this next phrase in verse 8. It's one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. And those who know me will probably know why. Luke 18.8, I consider this one of the most poignant and personal questions, one of the most vulnerable moments we ever get to see in the Savior's life. He says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. And that is the real question. When I paraphrase this for people, it's usually the last couple of lines. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? It's the whole reason I'm doing this. So that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. I want there to be faith when the Savior comes again. I want the world to be prepared for his coming, and I want the Lord to come and see that we are ready for him. Like I said, that's a vulnerable question. When I come again, will anyone even care? Will anyone still believe in me? Or will faith have evaporated by then? But think of the way the word, the phrase really begins. Nevertheless. Like I said, when I paraphrase it, I start with when. Because taken out of context, it's a powerful question. Will there be faith when the Lord returns? But in some ways, remember last week when we talked about the faith to forgive? And that great phrase, Lord, increase our faith, was more about forgiveness than it was about faith? Well, keep it in context and it blows your mind. The word nevertheless is what keeps this in context and helps us understand what the Savior was really getting at. Yes, he's wondering, when I return, will there be faith? So we're right to, to ask that, when we're right to work towards a yes, a positive answer. But with the question, with the word nevertheless, tie it all together, what's he really getting at? This is the parable of the importunate widow. Why does God take so long to answer our prayers sometimes? Why does he let us suffer and struggle before he when he said he was going to speedily come and avenge us. Well, he will. And that's the Lord's reassurance. I'm going to come through for you. I know you're crying day and night. I hear every one of those prayers. I know you've been pleading with me. I, I've listened to every petition. 
and I will come rushing in to redeem you. Nevertheless, when I come, will there be faith? Now do you understand why there's a need for divine restraint? Now do you see why there sometimes has to be a space of time to open between when we ask and when God answers? What fills that space? Our impatience. Well, yes. But what's supposed to fill that space? Our faith. And if the Lord came and answered every prayer immediately and bailed us out of every difficult circumstance the moment we found us, ourselves in it, then there went the chance to develop faith. It was swallowed up in perfect knowledge. No chance to wrestle with our questions. It was swallowed up. It evaporated in the face of relief. And we never got to learn from our trials. I've sometimes said to students that heaven has a heavy door. And it takes a lot of spiritual muscles to open it. That muscle is faith. And to build muscles, we need gravity. It'd be hard to <laughs> be a bodybuilder in outer space. Oh, you can move the weights all right, but they don't weigh anything, so it didn't do you any good. And it's in the absence, or the apparent absence of God, that gravity really starts to do its work. It's in mortal trials, it's in that, that gap where we wonder where God is, that we really start to flex those spiritual muscles. So that when the Savior comes and he's wondering, is there faith? The real question is, have we taken advantage of our chance to develop it? And sometimes the chance to develop it requires unanswered prayers. Not from an unjust judge that is sick of us asking, but from a loving father that wants to come rushing to our rescue, but holds back so that we have the chance to actually grow up in him. If you've ever had an over-eager spotter at the gym, you know what I'm talking about. Now we're back to gravity, and that spotter eliminates the gravity by lifting the weight. And we're looking at him going, what are you doing? You're robbing, of, robbing me of my chance to grow. God is, a, is the perfect judge. He knows just how long to wait so that your faith has time to develop, but not so much as to make your faith seem unfounded. Wait for the fourth watch. Wait for the eleventh hour and build faith in the meantime. He's giving us that chance. And then, on the heels of that story, he gives us one more. And it's with this last parable that we'll end today's lesson. It's not the end of, of Luke chapter 18, but everything else in the rest of 18 are things we've already covered in our study of Matthew 19 and 20. So let's end today with the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. It's a masterpiece. I love this one. I've sometimes tried to explain it to my students by drawing a, a grid on the board with four squares, just quadrants. And I'll label the top humble versus proud, and I'll label the side righteous versus sinful. So now between those oh, pairs of attributes, you now have four possibilities across the, the quadrant. See if you, I'm showing this on the, on the screen. If you are listening along, just try to picture this in your head. In the first quadrant, it's the, the righteous and humble. 
in the top right quadrant, it's the righteous and proud or prideful. The bottom left quadrant is the humble but sinful, and the bottom right quadrant is the sinful but proud. Were you picturing this so far? Now, I've often asked my students then, okay, rank the squares from best to worst. From most acceptable to God, that's number one, to least acceptable to God, that's four. Now, number one and number four are pieces of cake. Number one, of course, God wants us to be humble and righteous. And number four, of course, he doesn't want us to be sinful and prideful. Okay, great. Well done. You got the obvious ones. Now, how about two and three? How would you rank these two? Is it better to be humble but sinful, or is it better to be righteous and proud of that fact? Hmm. So, which, which dichotomy makes the bigger difference? Is it the righteous wicked, or is it the humble proud? And that has led to some interesting discussions. Well, I don't know of a better way to introduce the parable because that's the exact question that Jesus is wrestling with here. Verse 10 of Luke 18, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Now, we've met these kinds of characters a lot so far in our New Testament study. Remember, Pharisees are definitely righteous, but they, or in their minds they are at least, they are punctilious about their obedience to the law. Every jot and tittle, right? And how many steps on the Sabbath? And no wonder they're always uh, popping up whack-a-mole and calling out Jesus anytime they think he's doing something wrong. Righteous? Oh, they personify it in the eyes of most people. But they are so proud of that fact. Meanwhile, the publicans, everyone looks down on them. They work for the IRS, the Israelite Revenue Service. These, These are Jews who work for Rome against the Jews. You can't get any worse than that. Sinful? You better believe it. Well, how does this one feel about himself? Well, we'll see. There they are, both together, in the temple, both praying. But here's where the difference comes. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee, that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and if that was too general, let's be more specific, or even as this publican, ugh, I can't believe he got into the temples. There should have been a better Pharisee at the, at the gate keeping them out. Well, he goes on and explains himself to the Lord. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Wow, this guy really did go above and beyond. This Pharisee really is diligent, really is strictly obedient, really does seem righteous. So we, I guess we can keep him on the top of our quadrant. He is righteous. But is he humble or is he proud? Well, obviously from the, the evidence in his prayer, pride is his problem. It's not that he's living the wrong way. He's living really well. The problem is he knows how well he's living. And he makes a point of it every chance that he has. Uh, remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're fasting, don't disfigure your face. If you're praying, don't do it on the street corner. Here is this guy in the temple, probably out loud. God, thank you for making me better than other people. Extortioners and adulterers and this publican over there. Ouch, that's rubbing salt into the publican's wounds. You see the problem with the Pharisee. He's righteous, but he dwells on that fact. His was a prayer. Well, actually, even the prayer. It's so funny. Remember the phrase? He prayed thus with himself. Hmm. Who's he talking to? 
Is he praying to be heard of man or even to be heard of self? This is the kind of prayer that God does not listen to. It reminds me of the rich fool, right? When he's like, what am I going to do with all this stuff? I should say to my soul, hey soul! Remember, he has nobody to talk to because he's so wrapped up in himself. Same with this Pharisee. He's praying with himself, even though he throws God's name in there. So it makes it look like he's talking to somebody else. But he's just, in some ways, I picture him with his head bowed in prayer. But the only reason his head is bowed is not in humility before God, but the better to look down his nose at everyone there beneath him, especially this despicable publican there. No wonder the prideful Zoramites in the Book of Mormon built a stand in the middle of their synagogue so they could climb it and look down literally on everyone else around them. This ramiumptum, this is, a, this is the New Testament's ramiumptum prayer. Or to flip it, the Zoramites at the ramiumptum were the Book of Mormon's equivalent of the Pharisee here. And this is a self-serving prayer, just like the ramiumptum one was. We thank thee, God, that we are better than our brethren. Yeah, that's a prayer that God won't, won't touch with a 10-foot pole, no matter how many times you importune him. Notice he hasn't importuned at all. He doesn't think he needs God's help at all. I got everything I, I, that I need because I, I am everything I need to be. Ah. Meanwhile, shift to the publican. What do we see in him? Verse 13 and 14. And the publican standing afar off. And that phrase is usually reserved for people like lepers that know they're not worthy to come close. This publican is afar off. And he would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. This is bowing in true humility. Not looking down at others, looking down on self. Am I even worthy to lift my voice to heaven? He didn't think so. He smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He labels himself clearly there. I'm on the bottom side of the quadrant. I am sinful. But that's the question. Is he humble or proud? Some people are proud of their, of their sinfulness. This man was not. Beating his breast, not looking up to God, just admitting his sinfulness and wanting to change. There's a humble sinner compared to a self-righteous saint. And who does God prefer? Well, if you ask the Lord, where do you put number two and number three on our quadrant? Here's his response. I tell you, this man, the publican that is, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. There's that role reversal that we've come to expect from Luke. Interesting that Jesus would place the humble sinner above the self-righteous saint. Now, you do have to understand that he's speaking to the self-righteous saints right now. So his audience is determining largely what the content of his, of his parable is. He wants them to recognize, wait a minute, are you calling me the Pharisee? Uh, if the shoe fits, wear it. If he was surrounded by a bunch of, oh, picture people that are kind of, really, really lackadaisical and are proud of that fact and proud of the fact that they are 
not really living the gospel, but hey, I'm cool about it and I'm not, I don't judge people. And they look at people that are really striving diligently to do what's right, but they're doing it in a humble way. I think we'd have a different parable then. If Jesus' audience was not the, the prideful righteous, but if it was the prideful wicked, then yeah, we'd have a different parable. I think either way, he's trying to help us overcome pride. That seems to be the, the bigger issue. It's like God is less concerned about if you're righteous or you're wicked. That, those come and go. He's more concerned about humility and pride. Because if you're proud of where you are, you'll stay where you are. If you're humble about, your, about where you are, then you'll change. You'll give God a chance to change you. That's the issue here. And by, am I humble? Please, if, you're a, a, if you're obedient and humble, don't go become sinful just so you can be more like the publican. No. You, that's, that's the first quadrant. That's where you want, the Lord wants you to be. It's the rest of us that still need to work on our humility and overcome our pride. If, as long as that's in place, the Lord will, can work on us. We'll let him. And I love this, this humble publican for realizing he had some work to do. No wonder he came to the temple. It's a good place to do it. So can we come down from our Rami Emptums? In some ways, this is what Alma was getting at with Shiblon. In Alma 38, in, in a way, Shiblon is a little too close to the Pharisee in the parable. He's awesome. He's amazing. Read Alma 38, and he's as good as they come. But read more deeply into Alma 38, and you see Dad's concerns like, ooh, is this leading toward pride? We just left the Ramayamtum. Are you still there spiritually, son? Right. You are better than others in so many ways. Don't ever admit that to yourself. Okay, come down from the stand. This is how he said it to his son, Alma 38, verse 14. Do not say, O God, I thank thee that we are better than our brethren, which is exactly what the, the Pharisee was saying to the publican, exactly what the wicked Zoramites were saying from the top of the Ramayam. Don't be that guy. Alma goes on, but rather say, O Lord, forgive my unworthiness and remember my brethren in mercy. Yea, acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. And I love that Alma includes in his counsel to, to Shiblon, not just look at yourself a little less, but also look at others a little more. We didn't see that from the publican in the, story, in the parable. In the Pharisee, we saw both how he saw himself, very lofty, and how he saw others, very lowly. In the publican, we only saw how he saw himself, very lowly. But if you, if you fill in the blank, especially with Alma's help, how do you assume the publican views others? More lofty. Looking up to them, giving them the benefit of the doubt. All the things that the Pharisee should have been doing all along. I do love this parable. Uh, to me, it offers an important corrective for anyone trying to do what's right. Make sure you have right motives. We've been seeing that all day today. What are the motives behind marriage and divorce? What are the motives you find yourself acting on, whatever type of eunuch you happen to be? What are your motives to hold on to your riches, you rich young ruler, or your motives for abandoning them, Peter? 
What's your motive for the seat you want to sit in and the cup you think you'll be able to drink, James and John? What's your motive in pleading to the Lord? And what's His motive in not always answering you immediately? In some ways, the publican's spiritual stance, his humility, is the answer in all of those situations. It's the solution to all of those problems. Be merciful to me, a sinner, as he said. Those are the kinds of prayers God loves to answer because we've admitted we need that mercy. On the heels of that beautiful parable, can I share a beautiful poem? It's one of my favorites. I've shared it in some other lesson at some point in our three years together. Uh, forgive me if you've heard it before. It's called The Fool's Prayer by Edward Roland Sill. And the fool here is a court jester. Uh, so a, a, a fool, right? Uh, but think about the king looking down at the fool, uh, thinking, now oh, he's just here to give me laughs, and I laugh at him and not just with him. Think of that in terms of the Pharisee and the publican. When I, this, the, the parable and the poem are one in my mind. That's why I wanted to share them both together. And so think of the Pharisee as the king and the publican as the fool and listen to what Edward Rowland Sill teaches us. The royal feast was done. The king sought some new sport to banish care. And to his jester cried, Sir fool, kneel now and make for us a prayer. The jester doffed his cap and bells and stood the mocking court before. They could not see the bitter smile behind the painted grin he wore. He bowed his head and bent his knee upon the monarch's silken stool. His pleading voice arose, O Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. No pity, Lord, could change the heart from red with wrong to white as wool. The rod must heal the sin, but Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. Tis not by guilt the onward sweep of truth and right, O Lord, we stay. Tis by our follies that so long we hold the earth from heaven away. These clumsy feet, still in the mire, go crushing blossoms without end. These hard, well-meaning hands we thrust among the heartstrings of a friend. The ill-timed truth we might have kept, who knows how sharp it pierced and stung. The word we had not sense to say, who knows how grandly it had rung. Our faults no tenderness should ask. The chastening stripes must cleanse them all. But for our blunders, oh, in shame, before the eyes of heaven we fall. Earth bears no balsam for mistakes. Men crown the knave and scourge the tool that did his will. But thou, O Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. The room was hushed. In silence rose the king and sought his gardens cool. And walked apart and murmured low, Be merciful to me, a fool. My dear friends, I, I pray that we recognize our own foolishness. That we see ourselves in all the stories we've studied this week. 
so that it can dawn on us that there's some growing up to do for each of us. I pray that we'll have the, humble, the humility to come unto Christ. That we will give away all that we can without asking if God is keeping score. That we'll look around at those around us and build them up without tearing them down. And not comparing our best to other people's worst or how long we've been at labor. More than anything, I hope we'll come to Christ. Blind Bartimaeus is all. And admit to him that we need his help. That we can't see as clearly as we must. But with the help of the light of the world, there's hope. I pray that we'll pray without ceasing. That we'll never faint. Trusting a judge that is more than good. He's perfect. And if we'll simply continue to plead with him, not only will he come, but when he comes, he will find faith on the earth.